0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.
2: Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth.
3: Everyone, pretend podcasting
4: isn't boring. Turn it off.
2: to our world headquarters of the Bureau of Sexological Investigation. My name is Dr. Harrison T. Rogers. Now that we have reached the last holdout of human ignorance, the nature of man's sexuality in America today, I'd like to invite you inside these doors. Our outpatient clinic is... Perhaps one of the busiest in the country. We treat all kinds of patients. They're welcome here. If you have a sexual problem, we're ready to treat you. What is the ideal penis length? Just about four or five inches, just about like that. Oh, about nine, nine and a half. Down here. Right about. Below the knee. The male organ has an average of six inches in length. And the female orifice has... 8 inches of possibility, which means that if you translate this to world population, there are some millions of miles of unused orifice. At this time, I think we should talk about contraceptives. The ingenuity of modern man has given the fertile woman a variety of devices, starting, of course, with the diaphragm. Look at the names for the sexual anatomy they all sound like foreign imported cars the peugeot the vulva what i'm saying to you america is it doesn't matter how large a breast of a woman's is as long as they're huge do you think that the armed services discriminate against transsexuals Thank God they do, otherwise I'd be fighting in Vietnam. This might sound strange, but um, I really sometimes feel that I'm a reincarnation of Fatty Arbuckle. Hello there and welcome to the International Sex Games. This is Raven Arm Smith speaking to you live from the Sex Bowl in Houston, Texas. How do you feel about the growing sexual revolution in America? That kind of activity is not going to be tolerated in this capital.
1: This is going to be a hair-raising finish.
3: Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Skiz Sizek.
5: At this time, I think we should talk about contraceptives.
3: Also back in the booth is Ms. Heather Drain. Please call me Louise. On this episode of The Projection Booth, we are looking at Alan and Gene Abel's Is There Sex After Death? It's a mockumentary from 1971 that dares to ask the hard-hitting questions with ridiculous answers. It's a series of vignettes with some familiar faces like Buck Henry, Robert Downey Sr., Holly Woodlawn, Marshall Efron, and more. So Skiz, when was the first time you saw Is There Sex After Death, and what did you think?
5: I don't know when I first saw it. I have a feeling it was after seeing Abel Raises Cain, the documentary that I'm sure we'll talk about later. I don't even know how I found it. I just remember uh, doing research on pranksters and hoaxers hoaxers, like uh, Alan Abel and Joey Skaggs and finding out that this movie existed. And, uh, somehow tracking down a copy. I really don't remember, but I mean, that documentary, Abel Raises Cain didn't come out until 2005. So sometime in the past 15 years, I saw it. It's an amusing film. Definitely <laughs> a little, little unstructured, maybe, uh, a little dated, but that kind of is a, adds to a
3: lot of its charm. I would, I would think. And Heather, was this a first time watch for you?
6: This was the first time getting to see it like as a whole film, because I realized doing research for this that I had seen um, some clips of it a few years ago when I was uh, working on a project that sadly, it never came to fruition, no drama or anything. But um, but I was working on a project with Rob Everett, who's better known as Eric Edwards, who's probably one of, one of the most prolific and talented actors of the golden age of adult film. And uh He had told me that him and his then wife Kathy had small parts in this film, and he'd sent me a clip of it. In fact, they're, they're the main young couple we see at the clinic and making out in front of a fireplace. So I'd seen those clips. But of course, if, if that's all you're seeing, you don't get the full sort of tenure of the film. So yeah, this was my first time seeing it as a whole. Thanks to you, Mike.
3: This movie used to stare at me in the face when I was working at Blockbuster down in uh, Wyandotte, Michigan. I'm not sure why we had a copy of it, but we sure did. and. The VHS cover was awful. It was just <laughs> terrible. It was this picture of Buck Henry with a very buxom woman, and I think he was wearing a wig, and it just it looked bad. So I kind of stayed away from it. And then, like you, Skiz, after I saw Abel Race's Kane, I was like, I really need to check this out, and finally tracked down a copy, and it is very much a product of its time. And one thing that I was wondering is... Was this maybe like a year too early or was this just right at the nick of time? Like this is a year before Deep Throat comes out. I'm not sure what the temperature of the air was at this point, but I can imagine that it probably upset some people with all of the nude bodies that were going on, though I did hear that a lot of people that it upset were actually paid protesters by Alan Abel, (laughs) who actually hired people to protest the film in order to get the buzz about the film, which you do, uh, which is very smart, and that was his whole thing, was pranks, and this whole movie is basically a whole series. Like you said it's very unstructured it's very vignette based and you come to a point at the end where you're just like wow this sequence is going on for a long time what is happening here because other things just kind of move and flow sometimes almost too quickly and other times not quickly enough but that last sequence with like the what do they call it and that sex olympics that's another film but whatever the the sex competition is at the end it's like wow this you could just chop this off and it'd be a whole other film in and of itself
6: Oh god, that sequence wouldn't end. My husband came home from work while in the middle of that sequence, and he was like, "Jesus, this looks awful." <laughs> and I was like, "The earlier parts are a little better." Yeah. <laughs> no, I was thinking about this film in context of like what would be its peers. And it, I guess because of the hoax aspect, I don't know if it really has any proper peers. It's but it's it's such a fascinating curio because it's not really quite something like. What would we would later see with things like the boob tube, like which is like the sex exploitation parody of the groove tube, or um, what do you say to a naked lady, which was like the basically R-rated version of candid camera, I believe. Or then, like, the same year, 1970, you had Gerard Damiano make a documentary called Changes, which was all – this is pre-Deep Throat and all that. And it's, it's not hardcore, necessarily, but it's all about the changes of the counterculture. But, of course, that's done very sincerely, and it's actually really, really good. So, it's funny. This film is, like, such an anomaly. Like, I don't think it's wholly successful as a comedy. In fact, I would definitely say it's not wholly successful as a comedy. But it is, I think, really fascinating – if anything, on a cultural level, but just also on using comedy as a tool of subversion, which Alan Abel was very, very good at doing.
5: Yeah, I was kind of wondering, like, how much of it was meant to be a comedy and how much of it was meant to be a a prank, like fooling people into thinking that it was a real documentary. The comedy stuff, you know, when he asks Buck Henry, uh, were you a virgin? And he says, not the first time. I'm like, okay, that's great comedy writing, but you wouldn't put that in a serious documentary if you were trying to fool people into thinking it was real.
3: There are moments where I'm thinking that he was fooling the people that he was interviewing. There's a series of uh, Vox Populi uh, interviews that go through this man on the street kind of thing. And I kept wondering, because there were times where I was like, okay, it seems like he's asking the question that the people are answering, but then there's other times where it feels like they're answering something that he didn't ask. Like, the first one out of the gate is this whole idea about uh, the right length of uh, a penis. What, what's the perfect penis size? And I'm like, is that what he really asked somebody in order to get the answer of down below your knee or, you know, about four inches or somebody else saying, Oh, about nine inches. Like, what was the question that prompted that answer? I don't think that it was the question that he puts in the film. And there is a lot of manipulation of audio versus the answers, you know, him speaking. I mean, we get that a lot in the uh, Richard Nixon scene where it's Richard Nixon's voice answering questions that he's asking, but you know that he's probably not asking those at the time. It's probably all post sync. And then obviously it is 100% post sync when it comes to Richard Nixon and it's all cut up and it kind of leads the way into their second film, the faking of the president of a president. So, yeah, I was very curious how much of this was a prank on the people that he's talking to.
6: Because even like with the – not the people in the street sex, but like when we first see Robert Downey Sr., and you could tell like it's cut up or it's just it, – and honestly, this did kind of crack me up, where every question he asked, you just hear Robert Downey go, huh That was funny. But yeah, no, I mean, like, everything in this film is kind of a manipulation, which is, which is kind of cool. And and for the record, my favorite answer on the penis length was Holly Woodlawn, who said, I believe she said eight pearls long, holding up her pearl necklace. I can't think of a more fabulous, just, you know, glamour ghoul answer than that. I asked
3: what your exposure was to this film, but I'm very curious as far as what your your guys's history is with pranks. And I don't know, Heather, have you ever pranked anyone or been a part of a prank or a media hoax of any kind?
6: Actually, once, and this is amazing because I'm I'm a horrible prankster because I I will giggle and out myself immediately like i am the worst but actually it's so funny going back to classic adult film back when i was on facebook i was friends with Jody Maxwell who was absolutely wonderful woman we lost her a few years ago just very smart very sassy and she enlisted me I don't know if you'd really call this a prank per se, but it was definitely a tease where um, she had sent me like this beautiful, fully nude explicit photo that she did in the seventies. And she wanted me to describe it in DH Lawrence type like, purple prose, like, just go completely against the grain of, like, what porn guys would want to read, right? And she just posted, like, just a, like, a part of her face on the Facebook. That's all any of the dudes saw. So it was kind of just, like, a neener-neener sort of thing. Like, haha, I got to see your titties and you didn't kind of thing. <laughs> but that's the closest. I'm not very good at pranking. Um, my main sort of knowledge or exposure to prank culture is probably, like, through Boyd Rice, you know, kind of reading up on Boyd Rice. Those, some, some of the things I think he said that you were hoping were pranks weren't, and that's kind of the, <laughs> the real scary thing about Boyd Rice, but he's fascinating. I'm not sure I
3: know who Boyd Rice is. Can you give me a glimmer?
6: Boyd Rice is probably best known for um, his work with sort of experiments, experimental pseudo-industrial music, like with his group Non, that's N-O-N. Also, he has affiliations with, um, like, a, another group called Death in June, He's been a writer, very kind of controversial figure because he's somebody who kind of flirts with like fascist imagery. But again, he's a prankster. He's actually in research books, put out a book about pranks in the 80s, I believe. And they even did like an accompanying video and they interviewed him and like Penn and Teller and a bunch of other, other very fascinating people. And he had a prank where when he worked at Taco Bell in the 70s, when I
1: was 16 or something, I worked at Taco Bell for just just a very short while, just long enough to, long enough to cause enough trouble to get kicked out of it. <laughs> I made this dish when I worked at Taco Bell, you know, they had the things out front, tostada, quesadilla, these Mexican dishes with little accent marks over them. And I was looking, at, I found a whole bunch of them one day and I was looking at them thinking it would be funny to make my own dish. But have it be absolutely unpronounceable, but have the little accent marks there and have it spelled phonetically. And so I did this. I made something called a bean and and made the sign. I made the whole dish and I had it really irresistible, like 39 cents each. But if you bought one, there's an introductory uh, uh, thing where you get another one free. And nobody could pronounce it. They'd go, I'll have a bean Nobody could pronounce it the way I could. And I'd go, uh, Herchacher, <laughs> they go yeah. being what what you said. So and there are these really unpleasant things. Are mostly lettuce, this dry, salty lettuce, and some dry uh, tortillas. And it's, they usually get about halfway through, and they then come up and say, "I need uh, I need a soda to go with that. It's kind of dry."
6: He released a vinyl album where I believe, oh God, it's a little rusty, but like the hole where you put the you know put the record on the turntable, there were two holes.
2: Later on, we were kind of moved down the, the the food chain a bit to the Folk Tone label, which was a subsidiary. Uh, it was a decent label. They just didn't have the distribution. Well, they just didn't have... Well, they didn't have any distribution. No distribution at all. Uh, and the, the, the covers were printed in two colors instead of four, mm-hmm. which I, I noticed yeah. was a... Yeah. Uh, and brand. they had no uh, they had no hole in the center of the record, so a lot no, of the, you'd have to provide the, it the yourself people uh, complain that you'd get this... Vinyl, of course, in those days, and it kind of up to you to kind of center it and make mm-hmm. the actual. It would teeter crazily on the little yeah. spindle until the you. hole, and that was a whole. Well, of course, we had no control over that nightmare. aspect yeah. of it. But uh, but they were still good records. They, oh, were, they good, were good. was good, good, good product. Yeah. if you just punched a hole in them, part. you'd have a good time. Yeah,
6: I kind of do stuff like that. There's a really uh, good documentary made about him called Iconoclast, made by Larry Wessel. Boy, it's an interesting guy. Like, probably not the most. You know, he's he's very divisive for a lot of people. Um, I heard a story that uh, his this is horrible, but it did make me some things are so horrible, you have to laugh for his partner at the time, they had a kid together and they the kids with special needs. And he took the money that she had set aside to get the medicine to buy a second, I believe, Bobby Sherman lunchbox. (laughs) That maybe that also sums up Boyd Rice. And Skiz,
3: how about yourself? Have you ever uh, performed any pranks?
5: I guess to save time, I'll just pick one because it's, uh, the one that you were actually a part of, Mike.
3: Me, innocent little old me. I've never pranked anyone.
5: The Sundance Film Festival became this sort of huge, important festival in the nineties. I guess maybe even the late eighties. And then a slam dance film festival popped up in ninety five. By ninety seven, there were all these other festivals popping up, slam dunk, uh, things like that. And so I pulled a media prank out in Park City, Utah in 1998. It was the Son of Sam dance film festival. And the only reason I'm telling this story is because I think the cat's out of the bag at this point. So it's not like, you know, anyone's going to find out, oh, my God, that was fake. But it was it was a film festival where apparently uh, it was a, a Toyota van driving around with a projector aiming out the window and a loudspeaker on the roof. And you had to be lucky enough to be in the right place at the right time to see any of the films. And uh I put posters and postcards all over town with a link to the website so you could see what films were going to be shown. All the films were fake. None of them existed. And my van wouldn't have made it from Baltimore to Utah. Basically, it, it, this festival didn't exist at all except for these postcards and posters and website I got a ton of press and continued to get a ton of press for years. In fact, I bet if I, uh, do some Google searches now, I've probably gotten, I'm probably continuing to get press even this year. Like every January, it seems like somebody mentions the Son of Sam Dance Film Festival when they're writing about Sundance. One year I had friends that were out there promoting their very real film festival and they were, really angry at me because I was getting more press for my fake festival than they were getting for their real festival. And, you know, and this was years after the fact, I mean, I only did this in 98, but it was still going strong 10 years later.
3: I used to get so many queries for my fake film that was in their world of fandom, where it was this whole thing I made up about uh, people that were Taking fan fiction, especially slash fiction, and then acting it out and making fan films out of it. It was before like the fan film phenomenon really took off as much i mean this was you said ninety eight so this is eight years before youtube I can't remember when YouTube launched, and that obviously gave people a lot of uh, a big platform for uh, fan films. I mean, this was before things like Troops and other, uh, Star Wars things. I think the only real big Star Wars fan film that was out there was probably Hardware Wars. And yeah, I would get so many inquiries as far as, oh, can I see that movie? That sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Way back when we first – because we started this podcast in March of 2011, and by April 1st, 2011, we were doing a fake episode all about The Day the Clown Cried, and I swear that that episode has been quoted in books about what the film The Day the Clown Cried is, even though what Justin said was 100% true, what I said was – 90% bullshit. So a lot of that stuff was just me making stuff up and kind of working into what I kind of remembered about reading in the screenplays. And I swear that that stuff is documented out there as if it were the gospel truth, which is such a satisfying feeling when you you can actually pull the wool over somebody's eyes.
6: You guys are like two masterminds. I feel like I'm talking to Dr. Nabuse or something. I love it. I
3: love pranks and pranksters just because of how far they can go and the way that they can infiltrate stuff. There's good and bad to that. And I think we'll talk about that a little bit more in the second half of the show. But things like what Alan Abel was able to do with some of this stuff was just um, wonderful. And like I said, it's a great feeling to be able to put stuff out there and dupe the rubes it's amazing (laughs) like i I felt like pt barnum or something where it's just like oh I, i sold you this bullshit and you believed it the whole cloth okay cool and you never thought to ask any sort of questions and that's the thing that i really enjoyed reading about and and seeing stuff about alan abel was just how much he was able to put things out and nobody would question it
5: yeah it's like son of sam dance i mean nobody nobody researched it well no that's not true chris gore is the only one that contacted me asking, is this real? And then Film Thread immediately became a sponsor.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And it's ironic because there are other fake film festivals out there, but they're usually the ones that charge you, what, $500 so that you can buy an award? Those are the dark side of this kind of stuff, I would say. The ones that are like, hey, we'll show your film in a theater, and we just need a little bit of money because, you know, we're putting on a film festival, and, you know, if you want us to send you the award, you're going to have to pay this much money, plus this much for shipping, and it's basically pay for play or not even play. I, I doubt that those things even ever show a film.
5: Well, actually, I think I wrote an article for <laughs> for Cashiers to Cinema. To you did. That, that, uh <laughs> It, it, like, I, I've had a long history working for film festivals and giving plenty of filmmakers advice. And one of them is always stay away from those festivals. The filmmakers that don't listen to me and they, they get involved, they come back and it's like, it didn't really matter that I told them to stay away. They got what they paid for. They now get to say they showed in a film festival and they won an award. And I'm like, well, that's really impressive to uh your friends and your family, but it's not something you want to brag about to people in the film festival world because they can see right through
2: it.
6: God, that's so sad. I, I remember when I first started writing, like you'd see things like basically like sort of the publishing equivalent where there'd be like these contests and be like, oh, have your poem featured in this special, you know, it was, it, it, you know, the special leather-bound book and go to this conference. But like the more you read, you realize everything has a pay tier to it. That's the thing most artists, if any, like whether it's film or writing or whatever, like there's submission fees for stuff, but I mean, use your critical thinking skills. Like if something smells like bullshit and seems like bullshit, it's probably bullshit.
3: (laughs) I just saw an article yesterday that uh, Josh Hadley sent me, which is Rolling Stone is looking for quote unquote thought leaders. And I thought that the headline was that rolling stone would pay them two thousand dollars to write for them but no it's the writer has to pay two thousand dollars in order to be in rolling stone so now even rolling stone is in this kind of get your poem printed
6: <laughs> well this is the same magazine that even in its early underground days jan Wenner said women couldn't write and also would fire lester Bangs because he gave a negative review so rolling stone has always been terrible is what i'm saying <laughs>
3: Now, if you say that women can't write and you're pushing buttons, and I think that's one thing that we see Abel doing a lot in this stuff is like he's able to find those buttons and push those buttons. And I love even in that, uh, I think it's like the second time where we're doing a man on the street interview where he's asking people about the birds and the bees, or at least that's what the question is that we hear. And he immediately switches to bestiality. Like, well, what about bestiality? <laughs>
6: You could think, if he, if that is really what he asked them, of course, we have to keep that. But some of them, you could tell, like, I don't think they knew what it was. I, who could blame them? Like, I, I wish I didn't know what it was, because <laughs> it's nasty. <laughs> but can you imagine, like, especially, like, 1970? Take some balls, man. Alan Abel is a man of testicular fortitude.
3: I do like the scenes in Is There Sex After Death?, where you can tell that you're really dealing with some great improv-type comics. The scenes of Abel and Buck Henry, or the scenes of Abel and uh, Marshall Efron. And I think, I mean, Efron just kind of takes it and runs, and just
2: goes places that I found to be hilarious. Recently, you completed a motion picture film that was banned by every organization in the country and in North America and Europe. This was the film, I believe, uh, Going Down on the Farm. Going Down on the Farm. Yes, showing uh, showing a a goose (laughs) copulating with a donkey. Now, didn't you feel just a little little cheap, perhaps? Didn't you feel a little debased? Do you know how long it took for us to set up one minute of cinema magic? You mean... Do you know how it took to get a goose... And a donkey to make, become friends and then lovers. You know what we had to do to get that goose and that donkey together? You know how we had to load that donkey with, with special goodies like yeah. wheat yes. and, and corn. We had a scotch tape corn to that donkey's body to get that goose to work. It lasted for 25 seconds on the screen. But this was. And people big. believed it. Mm. It was magic. In other words, you feel proud that you made the first X rated animal film. Next year, we are planning to do a Tarzan feature like you wouldn't believe.
3: And there's the one guy, too, he plays Dr. Eleven-like, or 11 Ike Jim Warren, who is, like, his character is, like, the most pompous doctor that you'll ever get in that scene where he's just using the two feathers on the women that are around him and basically ignoring everything that Abel is saying. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so there are moments. I do like moments in this film. I'm not sure if it holds together all the way, but there are definitely some high points for me in this.
6: Oh, I think Buck Henry talking about the sex lives of dwarves. If any listeners, if you're very sensitive to being triggered, you're probably not listening to us. So that's okay. <laughs> but just in case, if you're, yeah, obviously this film different era. But it's like, it's kind of funny. And then he he's like, well, he's basically saying that most of them die because that the act of orgasming just kills them. You know, he's like, of course. I mean, if that wasn't the case, we'd be up to our ass in dwarves. I mean, God bless Buck Henry. (laughs) This is the same time period that he wrote and starred in Catch-22. He did this film and Catch-22 around the same time.
3: I was very happy to see James Randi show up as the uh, psychic medium, pulling all of the ectoplasm out of his mouth, because we've talked about Randi on the show before and uh, the documentary about him, uh, An Honest Liar, and just that he's very much in that kind of pen and Teller school as far as debunking uh, hoaxers. And so him playing a medium is great that he is now Part of the hoax, you know, <laughs> and then the ghost that comes out and start with that horrible Jewish accent and just <laughs> all of the the terrible things that you can't do when you're dead. And answering the question, is there sex after death? I didn't think that there would actually be an answer to the question in the movie. Yeah, I mean, the film gives us the titular line. I have to say that the Hollywood Lawn section, whenever she was on screen, it made me really nervous. She just seemed like out of sorts so often and just like the hand motions and the pearls and all that stuff I was just like ah I just I was a little freaked out because she was just so it wasn't necessarily manic but there was just like what is going on with this person I can't just
2: it was tough to watch her how does it feel to go from obscurity to fame tiring why? It's so exhausting. Because I'm like, all just running around, taking after food, coming here, there. But the people are fabulous. I love them. They're so kind. Do you think that the armed services discriminate against transsexuals? Oh, thank God they do. Otherwise, I'd be fighting in Vietnam. Well, what is your answer to the war in Vietnam? <laughs> thank God I'm not there. How would you solve it? I already solved it. Oh, the war? Yes. Oh. Oh, mm. a mathematician I am not.
6: Mm. I get to be the dissenting voice here because I fucking love Hollywood a I I love her. She her autobiography, Low Life and High Heels, which I highly recommend. She is fabulous. Most of the Warhol people at this point in time, almost I'd say like ninety nine percent of them were on speed. So you probably want to take that into account. <laughs> I'm not saying Holly was, but the likelihood it's there. I don't, some of her answers cracked me up. One of the first things we see after the penis thing is when he's going around asking different people about their, uh, when they lost their virginity or the first time they had sex. And she, she tells the story that first sounds horrible. She's talking about being five years old in a in a sugar cane field and she's raped. And they're like, oh my God, that's awful. But then she's like, you know, oh, it was quite nice. I mean, he he was a nice guy. He was a nice guy. I liked him. Like, it's like, What? <laughs> I don't know. It reminds me of um, that documentary I uh, hated on Gigi Allen, where one of the guys talks about the drummer Dino, and he got arrested for like flashing, like a, like some kid. And you're like, God, that's fucked up. But then the guy adds, "Well, it's okay because Dino later on said he was just joking." Like, what? <laughs> it's like one of those moments. So you're like, what? <laughs> when Allen asks her how would you solve the vietnam war and she's just like oh a mathematician i am not i clapped a little with that that was i i love holly i i totally understand where you two are coming from but um she's i don't know she's fabulous and she plugged trash which if anybody out there has not seen paul morrissey's trash i highly recommend it and holly is a total star in it she's so good she steals the whole film
3: I was also very happy to see Earl Dowd as Merkin the Magician. I knew I knew his face when I saw him, and then it took me a while to realize that he was on the far out space nuts and then also <laughs> wrote a ton for Sid and Marty Croft, like ton of episodes of Far Out Space Nuts. He wrote a bunch of episodes of Wonderbug. So it's just like he was all over the Sid and Marty Croft universe it's so fascinating to look up because 1971, it was an interesting year when, where these people, you know, you mentioned Buck Henry, where he was at in his career and just where some of these people were at in their careers at this time and what they would go on to do, what they had done beforehand. It's like, wow. uh, Just
6: remarkable. And the American magician as segment, which by the way, I'm so glad you pointed out who that guy was. I kept being like, he looks so familiar too, but I kept thinking he looks kind of like a Carney. That sells you like weed at the roller rink or something. I don't know. He's very seedy and, and but it's perfect for it. His beautiful, lovely magic, like magician assistant is played by Miss Jennifer Wells. And Jennifer Wells was, got her start in actually as a model. In fact, you get a lot of sort of like lounge exotica albums, uh, from the early mid sixties. Some of them have her on the cover, which is very cool. Uh, she was also an actress. Uh, in fact, she was in, um, career bed. Joel Emreed, who directed, would go on to do Blood Sucking Freaks. Um, he made a very depressing sex exploitation film called Career Bed, which I actually think personally is better than Blood Sucking Freaks. Of course, though we don't get Ralphus, and so that's, you know, Ralphus is obviously the man, but Jennifer Wells would go on to hardcore films too, and became kind of one of the first, I mean, they didn't call them MILFs back then, obviously, but she was like kind of one of the first MILFs. Like she was an old, beautiful older woman, and which was very cool to see, just an older woman just, you know, being very sexual and being heralded as, you know, as a love goddess. Um, Earlier in the film, I'd mentioned we see Eric Edwards, as he was known in the adult world, but his real name is used in the film, which is Rob Everett and his real life, Kathy. And of course, Rob would have a four decades plus career acting and directing in adult films and in fact there's a gag in this film that he would use in a film he directed because at one point you see kathy like they've made a puppet out of his penis as you do of course i've seen the whole show on it yeah this film was very innovative maybe the first penis puppet film it's a gag he would put in um, a mid-80s film he directed called Motel Suites, with um, which had like Taja Ray in it. And it's actually a very cute film. Like Rob was also a very good director. And you also have Tina Russell. Tina Russell was one of probably maybe the first real like quote unquote porn star. Because you have to think about 1970, Adult was just getting legalized and coming 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 out of the whole stag underground kind of seedy thing and like you had uh mona which was like the first explicit feature film and tina russell wasn't in mona but she you know was an early porn star and she plays she's in the magician sequence as always one of the um people out of the crowd that he pulls on stage and she says that she was a, a former masketeer which is really cute because he's like you look familiar and she's like you probably saw me on tv when i was a kid and the last one is Janet Bansay, who's in one of the press sequences. She's one of the people asking questions. And Janet never did um, Hardcore, but she was in some of the best and most deranged sexploitation films, uh, including Michael Finlay's Amazing Ultimate Degenerate and Kiss of Her Flesh, which if you've ever wanted to see what sexploitation would be like if it was acid jazz from a psychopath – I highly recommend Michael Finley's work. I love him. So we have like five people of the adult world, and yet none of them are in the porn film sequence.
3: The Sex Bowl. I was trying to remember. It's called the Sex Bowl, not the, the Sex, sex Olympics. Yeah. But yeah
6: none, none of them were in that. Or we have a sequence where we have a dirty, a dirty, you got to say it like that, a dirty movie director. And I didn't recognize any of those people, so...
3: Yeah, and then there's the uh the adult movie theater where the guy's enjoying <laughs> himself and then gives like one of the most eloquent uh interviews of the film.
6: That sequence has I think actually one of the best jokes in the movie. Where the guy was talking about how filthy TV is, and he's like these homosexuals going around patting each other on the, the backside and reaching between their legs and hugging, and they call it football. Mike I wasn't able to find anything. Is there a reason why this film is super out of print and like, so hard to come by? Because this one, I mean, we've we've re- we've done more obscure movies on the show that were way easier to find copies of.
3: Right, and it's not like it's. I kept seeing it listed as if it were on uh, YouTube, but I don't think it is. I think it's like other stuff when you click on it. So it's like okay, it, yeah, it's very frustrating trying to find this, and I'm trying to remember who put it out originally.
1: Image Entertainment released the film on DVD in
6: 2004.
3: Yeah, I don't know if it's a rights thing or what the story is, why this one isn't more easily findable.
6: You talked about the cover on the VHS looking bad. The DVD cover said, hold my beer, because it looks like dog shit. It is terrible. It'd be nice for a company. Actually, Vinegar Syndrome or a a company like that would be prime to pick up this. I mean, I know they released uh, Robert Downey Sr.'s Putney Swope. I forgot to mention. I think that on the cover with Buck Henry, I find I
3: found that cover of the VHS that I remembered, and it's him with that horrible wig on. And then there's the Dominatrix. And according to IMDb, that Dominatrix was Mink Stole. But I never asked Mink if that was true or not.
6: I thought she looked like Mink. I actually had that in my original notes. I'm like, this girl has Mink Stole energy, or I think I said serving Mink Stole realness. <laughs> I watch a lot of drag race apparently but um it looks it looks like her but I don't know.
5: It didn't jump out at me as being mink. You never know. There's one way to find out.
3: When are you uh, practicing with Mink again?
5: I don't know. Um she's on the west coast these days. Uh
3: Oh, that's right.
5: So I'm not sure uh you know when we have any gigs coming up.
3: That's funny. I found another VHS cover and it's Almost the same thing, but no Buck Henry in the wig. It's just Buck Henry, and it looks like he's down on his hands and knees. And then it's a different picture of the dominatrix. And I can kind of see the mink in the face, but yeah, I'm not sure. I can't see her well enough to say for sure that that's her or not. And it's interesting that on the cover, it has the same four people that I had listed as far as like familiar faces, <laughs> so Buck Henry, Marshall Efron, Robert Downey, and Hollywood Lawn on there, so and then we've got Buck on the cover. so but yeah, I don't know who owns the rights to this thing. It seems like it should be a lot easier to find, but you know we love to cover uh, really tough to find movies around here, like the Blues Brothers
6: Total Deep cut.
3: Let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and we'll be back with an interview with Is There Sex After Death's co-director, Jean Abel, and her daughter and the co-director of Abel Raises Cain, Jenny Abel. And we'll be back with that right after these brief messages.
0: Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, AdamandEve.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number ten, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your ten free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H.
3: At adamandeve.com. The new streaming service, Film Movement Plus, opens up a world of award-winning entertainment, including some of the best films from around the globe. Among the hundreds of titles waiting for you to discover are some of the best films from 2020, including The Wild Goose Lake, Zombie Child, and more. Available on Roku, Apple TV, and Amazon Fire, as well as streaming online and on mobile. Film Movement Plus is priced at $5.99 a month. But as a listener of the projection booth, Film Movement Plus will give you a 30 day free trial plus the next three months at 50% off when you use the promo code PROJECTION. Sign up today at filmmovementplus.com. And for one lucky listener every week this month, January 2020, I am giving away a full year's membership to Film Movement Plus. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at ProBoothCast.com for more information on how you can get this great prize. You obviously love podcasts, but are you also a fan of movies and television? Do you want to listen to a show that reviews entertainment honestly and casts pretentiousness to the wind? That debates both film and TV topics in a fun, good-spirited way while still getting to the heart of why we all love them so much then don't miss the award-winning weekly podcast, The Hollywood Outsider. Now available on your favorite podcast app or at HollywoodOutsider.com.
2: I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast.
4: Mom, are you operating a microwave right now? What's going on I'm over there? I'm just my coffee out, yes. Okay, I'm ready, Mike, I'm ready to, ready to- we're all yours. I'm going to turn the volume up. Can you hear us?
7: Yes, I can hear you just fine.
4: So how, first of all, how did you find us?
3: I remember when Able Raises Kane came out, I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And I think I'd read about the faking of the president. I keep a list of like, I want to see these movies. And I've had that movie on my watch list for years. And then I was just like, you know, I bet you if I just reached right out to Jenny Abel, she might be able to help me out here.
4: Right, but I gave you a copy that was like a weird edit without color and the the, the last time I saw that movie was when they the retrospective of my parents was two thousand seven at the anthology, so they their anthology film archives in, in the city in lower Manhattan, I believe they still have in their archives the only print, but it was like hilarious, and with an audience like it actually played but the black and white version that I showed you is like kind of a strange edit. Like, it's very unsettling. There's something about it. And, Mom, I, I, I hope that you don't take this uh, the wrong way, but I think that Is There Sex After Death is, is the stronger of their two films. Would you agree with that statement, Mom?
7: Absolutely. The reason why we made the faking really was to keep ourselves in the loop, as it were, because Is There Sex After Death had such great response which we really weren't expecting, uh, we're, oddly enough. We worked on it for a couple years at least, and um, I guess the timing was just right, and, they, and the critics uh, were welcoming, and uh, we were kind of like that that new breath of fresh air. We weren't establishment. We weren't Hollywood. And they were encouraging at that time. People like Bob Downey were, were making those small movies down the village. You know, we were being kind of given, I think, uh, a leg up by people who probably would have, would have probably criticized us differently in another time. But it was, the time was right and we were there. So following that, we felt the need to, to make a film. And we were looking around and at that time, Nixon was having all these his difficulties. Watergate was going on. We made the film while all of it was happening. So every day there'd be some new revelation. We just kept rolling. We didn't have a lot of money. We, I, I think we only got like 35,000 or something together. <laughs> it was made in bits and pieces. We had the use of, uh, uh, I think he called himself, uh, Jim Dixon. He had, he had a number of names, but that was one of them. And he did have an unc- uncanny resemblance to Nixon at a certain position. he just held his head at a certain angle, <laughs> he looked like Nixon. He was eager to do it and, um, so we went to Washington, we walked around Washington, we went up to the, uh, the guard's gate at the White House, and we, you know, we, in those days, you could move around quite easily, uh, without a lot of, uh, conflict. It's amazing, really. We got away with doing a lot of stuff. We, uh, we used uh, Grant's Tomb, for instance. It was made, uh, on a Pentron reel-to-reel machine, pretty much. We took Nixon's, um his actual speeches, uh, and it was in quarter inch tape, and, or no, what would you call that quarter inch, Jennifer? It's seven and Real uh, real, well, yeah, early real audio, uh, quarter inch tape. Yeah, it was, with this machine, it was very, it's full of tubes, if I recall, which had to be replaced from time to time. Um, but anyway, I was able to actually cut quarter inch pieces and piece it together, and being a, a miniaturist, it, kind
4: of came easily
7: for me to do that kind of thing
4: i did you I know that mike that my mom makes miniature doll houses so she's able to like take the tiniest little tiny things that are like the size of a head of a pin and you know make little like you know like tiny food and and tiny houses and tiny tiny everything so she was able to like manipulate the audio because she was already so nimble with her fingers it was apparently a feat in itself that um well, i don't know if she or the first person who ever cut audio that tightly i'm not sure but that's what we heard uh, from one of our archive friends. said uh, i
7: i was unique in that sense it just occurred to me that that was something we could do on a cheap it's as simple as that you know because <laughs> the ables we, were cheap <laughs> well we didn't have the money <laughs> I have to say, in retrospect, uh, given all the things that happened uh, to the film, uh, which we will talk about, um, probably the the things that happened while we were making it were sometimes funnier than the film itself. So we were, at one point, we borrowed the use of a car and the driver. We we knew him. He was a chauffeur. And we had this wonderful um, big limousine. So we went out to Long Island again. This is Jim Dixon's. Where he lives, his territory. And uh so we were intent to go to the uh the beach where we, go- we were going to have him walking on water. So we were on our way, and we were followed following that limo. It had flags on it too, by the way. The flags on the front, and uh we were
4: following. What were uh, you driving? What were you driving? I'm trying to think. What was the car? It was the, the white... it was the really cr- crappy white Pontiac. Pontiac. Okay.
2: The 66
7: Pontiac that yeah, was all dented. Red leather seats, if I recall. So that somehow got the attention of somebody who called, and who knows, like, it probably called the police, and the police called the Secret Service. It happened, just we didn't know. It just so happened Nixon, Nixon was in town that day. So somebody thought it was Nixon being followed
4: too closely by some a car, you know. Like a like in a, in a crappy white beater, like a Pontiac. <laughs> but, Mom, you didn't tell Mike that... uh Abraham Lincoln was in the car. You had an Abraham Lincoln. Well, that like. I was
7: about to tell you that out, out came, because they, they had guns in our faces. These guys had were serious. They were a whole bunch of them, about five or six or so. And so they pulled us off the road. They ran us off the road. They were really shocked, you know, and suddenly out goes Lincoln with his tall hat, you know, because we had Lincoln in there, too. <laughs> and, uh, and Jennifer was just one and a half. We had her and a babysitter. So we all get out of the car and they realize, of course, you know, just from the look of it, that there's something afoot. And, uh, Jim Dixon explained that we were making a movie and so on and so on. And so they kind of relaxed and we said, look, we got to get to the beach just to catch that last light. We want the sunset. We really, our whole day was, you know, and we made a case for it that we really had to get there. So they took us to the beach and, um, Actually, somewhere we've got even still photos of them. They, they let us take their pictures and they're all happy and having fun and they, somewhere out of nowhere came a beach buggy and they were giving Jennifer a ride on their beach buggy and riding around the area and, you know, everybody was having fun. And meanwhile, we got our shot. We got Lincoln with his arm around Nixon and what, what I did was, of course, edit in. This is all MOS photo, uh, uh because without sound because, um,
4: we, Mike, we would, don't don't insult Mike's well, knowledge. I don't right? know. Don't. If Mike has um, a film background. Something
7: he, he may not know. Okay. Uh, but in any case, um, then I, I I somehow managed to put together everything. And I we always kept Nixon uh, at a, at a point where I could easily introduce any any speech I wanted. And I what I did was I had another actor. Well, the actor actually who played Nick, uh, um Lincoln, he did have a nice voice. So he did the Lincoln lines, and Nixon uh, did his lines, which I had edited, and they had a conversation. So it was so, all ADR, uh, is what you're saying. Uh, so uh, I hope that's in the, what you, that's some of my favorite material was in, was that scene. Uh, but I know some of it was cut. So it was also cut for somebody else's purpose. I don't remember what, so, for distribution or some show or something. So um, Then... Um, Unfortunately, when the, sh- the uh, film was shown, we had a friend, Gene Buck was his name, who, um, he had escaped a cult, I remember. So he had a couple different names, but he was using Jim, uh, uh, Gene Buck at the time. <laughs> he decided, wouldn't it be nice if we had a premiere of your movie out in Salt Lake City? And uh, so we went along with it, not really suspecting much, but... Um, if oh what the hell you know um we didn't have great expectations for we weren't about to play New York we weren't about to we figured the college audience would be probably the one we would aim for for the most part with this movie um so uh, the idea of a premiere sounded like a good idea, so Alan went out with um uh to, to, to meet Buck and um Gene Buck and um so gene had put his uh, all kinds of posters up on the his car, and and on the theater, they had posters on the box office, which was just outside the, the building itself, and um, they were going to have a parade. Well, they had shown it to the local, God, who knows, maybe the mayor or whoever, you know, the folks who are at the top, uh, the, the day before its opening, I guess it was, and then there was supposed to be a parade afterwards. Well, The uh, the local high schools and all the local, you know, everybody was going to have their band or whatever. There was going to be a a sizable parade. Well, once they had seen the movie, somehow the word went out, and everybody canceled. Everybody canceled except Alan. He ended up with a motorcycle in front of him, a motorcycle behind him, and he played the snare drum. And because he played so loudly, he could really sound like a band. The people on the upper stories of the, wherever they walked, I assume in the downtown area, were still throwing out the confetti and all, you know. <laughs> and it was just him. It was just him. <laughs> and and uh, so, I mean, it's something he should have told everybody, uh, this isn't looking real good. So, all right, time comes uh, for the <clears throat> premier, pr- premier showing. Alan's across the street uh, having his dinner. He, because it's so hot and they don't, apparently their air conditioning wasn't working and so they had the doors open so he could kind of hear the first few minutes or so. I think he said it was like 20 minutes in. Suddenly all hell breaks loose. All of a sudden there are people with bats and, and some rocks and, and whatnot and they're destroying the box office. That's destroying the showcase windows. And they're wreaking havoc everywhere they can. They're, I don't know if they turned over the Gene Buck's car, or, but there was just all this sudden riot behavior. And I'm in the kitchen in, in our home in Westport at the time, and I have the news on in the living room on the television, or the evening news, and I'm hearing something about a riot in Salt Lake City, and I, and I think I'm hearing my husband's voice. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, he had come down now to see what was going on. I mean, he, he, um, he, you know, what, what? You know, he was trying to understand what was what was happening. Well, the policeman at, at the scene said, "You got to get out of here. Your life's been threatened." And uh, so he had a few words on that sh- on that airing of the, the news. I'm thinking, what the hell? What the hell's going on? I, I, I don't know. Is he in trouble? What's going to happen here? And um Apparently, uh, Alan said, "Well, you know, I mean, there are no flights. I think it was a Sunday
4: uh, at that point. We and, bump uh, a backup. Why was everybody so agitated? Well, was it because the, the I, We have to
7: presume that it was first of all too soon. A lot of people were pro uh, Nixon. Um, there were a few kind of things in there that might might be an- make uh, for anger. Yes, I have, like over the top, like too much. It was, not, it was not. a... It was not a kind uh, review of Nixon, uh, obviously. Well, we had a number of things in there. I'm trying to remember now. Um, it was all pretty much from a Democratic point of view, I guess you'd say. Uh, certainly, it wasn't kind to Nixon, that's for sure. I don't know. There's something about the Norm- Mormons. Maybe they're mostly Republicans. I don't know. So, Alan's saying, well, my 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 suitcase, my things are in the, in the motel, and, and so... That, the sheriff said, never mind, I'm going to take care of everything, we're going to get you things, I'm going to take you to the airport. So Alan's saying, well, I, I know there's no other plane That I mean, I'm waiting for tomorrow, I mean... Anyway, he goes to the airport, and he sees a small plane, and I think he said in the door, he was seeing someone who strangely familiar. So he walks up, and he's introduced, presumably by the sheriff, and the sheriff is saying... This man is going to take you to Reno, uh, and uh, presumably, uh, good luck, it turns out to be John Wayne. So here he is, John Wayne is on the way to Reno with his buddies and uh, to gamble, and um, so he he welcomes Alan aboard and wants to hear all about it. (laughs) So Alan tells him the whole story about the making of the movie, and and John was laughing so much he Alan said tears are running down his face. He kept apologizing for laughing. He he said, I made, I don't know, umteen movies and nobody's ever run me out of town for it, you know? <laughs> and so uh John Wayne got him a t motel or a hotel room and said, Uh, when you feel like it, come on down. I'm I'm gonna feel I'm gonna be gambling. I feel lucky tonight. So Alan took him up and on his offer and And, um, he went down and, and he, so John, I don't know what table, kind of table, if he was rolling dice or what, but anyway, let's presume he did. He rolled him about five times. Alan bet with him 10 bucks a throw and, and lost every time. (laughs) So (laughs) after a while he got tired and, and went to bed and well, John Wayne paid for everything. And, uh, it, it was an interesting interlude in his life and fun to write about, um, but uh, anyway, the, the movie, I'm sure there are even other incidents, you know, that uh, of things that happened that just, like Grant's tomb, for instance. Um, again, we didn't have the money to rent anything, and we, we didn't want to go to the police and ask for permission to do anything because, you know, everything costs, and you don't want police hanging around when you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. So anyway, we decided we hang a sign on Grant's tomb, or right at the gate there. And uh, so, so, uh, we figured we'd, we'd take maybe half an hour to shoot and get out of there. Of course, uh, a bus came along, a tour bus, and a lot of tourists in it. And they said, because we had the sign covered up, uh, as it were, with our own sign, the, what was it called anymore?
4: A Bureau of uh, Sexual Investigation? Oh, mommy, you're talking about is there sex after death when you, when you created the Bureau of Se- Sexological. Oh, you're right, I'm in the wrong. Study,
7: way. or whatever. Okay, we well, ship that then. Forget
4: that one. <laughs> but you know what I, I just realized? Wait, yeah, what? I was yeah, going to say Mike hasn't even gotten a word in edgewise. Well, do you want to ask not- us anything? I feel so bad. We just took over the whole conversation.
3: It's really okay. This is. It's going very well. As long as I can oh, okay. ask some follow-ups, it's good. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so, Mom, wait, because I feel All like right. there was something else you were... Gonna add about just like the craziness. I was go- well, actually, I was gonna interject that. I think two things. M- Number one, my mom and my dad always made things magical happen from nothing. They basically could create something. They, they called themselves shopping bag productions, so they had limited supplies, limited props, limited everything. But they both had the gift of you know, being able to perform on the spot and inspire others to just kind of like jump into action, and that's where my parents are. They're they're unique in in that way that they you know they always created something out of nothing. And even with my mom's miniatures, like she creates these ins- like just insane creations from absolutely nothing. She she just like gathers mater- little materials here and there, and then all of a sudden she has this magical thing. But also I realized that in telling the story, none of it sounds believable. And I think that was part of what my parents' mystique was too, is like, it, it does, it just doesn't seem real. Like some, some people don't have but one experience in their life, but, but my parents have like hundreds of these insane experiences that it doesn't sound like they're telling the truth, but this really did happen. All of this happened. It's like that movie The Big Fish where you don't you think that the guy is making it up, it's this fantastic world, but in actuality they were there. They were witnesses to this madness.
3: How is their sex after death came about? Just because it seems like such a, a big leap to engage in, in creating a movie and being it just seems like such a huge endeavor.
7: Well, we started out to make a western and then <laughs> along came Ed Blazing Saddles although i I actually I looked up recently, somehow that came along years later, but we always tell the story thinking, uh, you know, well, we were kind of, you know we couldn't do something we didn't want to do something that looked like uh, that because that's what we had in mind to do was make fun of westerns and uh, how the West was lost, I think was the title we had at the time. We even had people I mean, the funny thing about Alan's life is is that. He was able to talk people into doing things in the span of an elevator ride or, uh, between stops on, on the subway. He sees somebody and, and we had something, he had something in mind he wanted to do and he could engage these people and somehow they would want to do it, whatever it is he suggested. And some of it was actually risky, you know, (laughs) one way or another. It always amazed me. I was never there on these
4: occasions, but, I know that he, but, but did. Mom, you're forgetting that Dad did that to us too. He would get well, us to do the crazy stuff. Yes, do you yes. not remember the last fifty nine years? Yes, I do, yeah, and like uh, I mean Dad would cajole or not he would just basically not cajole. that's not the way we uh gently coerce, and then we would be with the picket sign. <laughs> like, there we were on the street, handing out the whatever ridiculous material that he'd created on his typewriter the night before. So, you you talk about all these strangers, but if you look at our history, we were participants. And Dad was very convincing. He would be persistent and persuasive. And we would think, okay, well, we have to do this. You know, Daddy would like... I, I'm not going to say, like, brainwashing, <laughs> but Daddy, like, basically had a crazy idea, and he got everybody else excited about this crazy idea, or he just convinced you to do it, and then you did it, and then you realized, well, this is kind of fun, and that's how you got involved in his pranks, right? I mean, wasn't that kind of like you were... Well, yeah. ...pulled into it, center it and started, that went-
7: It started with stuffing envelopes and licking stamps... Because he did all these mailings. I mean, he was always, always promoting. Uh, I mean, there are a lot of things that he 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 did. He put out some successful and some not so. But there were always ideas. There are boxes of them upstairs.
4: Ideas. Yeah, he was a tireless promoter and creator. Like he just, all, I just remember him typing all night. I don't think I think he barely slept because he was always at that typewriter doing whatever. Whatever he was concocting, he was just, he never stopped. But then he, and my mom fell in love in the 50s, and he was already doing that, that, the, uh, the Society for Indecency to Naked Animals prank. And just like what we we're talking about, like my mom had the picket sign, and now she's helping with the mailings, and then she's doing radio interviews or whatever. Like, well, did you do radio or no? Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah, I there mean, was a you were... period of
7: time when we picketed the White House in 63, Kennedy was in the office, of course, and uh, we went, we picketed uh, asking Jackie to uh, dress um, Caroline's pony. And macaroni. Macaroni, that's right. Now, later on, as things seemed to happen to, to Alan so much, he actually shared a cab with Jackie's half-brother, Jim Alconclaws. Just by happenstance, I think there was a I don't know, shorty cabs or something at the time, and, and, uh, so they got friendly. So it just so happened that Jim was in the, uh, White House at the time. He was like 16 or something. His job was to read the papers in the morning and give, uh, the president his, his critique or, or, or at least the important things he wanted to note. And, um, he said that Kennedy was looking out the window laughing at us. Jackie wasn't so happy. <laughs> And uh, so, yeah, he ended up in Is There Sex After Death? He's in one of the scenes. So, you know, everybody we knew pretty much was part and parcel of whatever we were doing at the time. Alan's uh, editor for one of his books is also in the movie. You know, I mean, whoever, come on over. You know, (laughs) come on over. We're doing this thing. (laughs) It's like a uh, motley crew. Yeah, and we fed everybody. And... um, I don't know. We had a good time. We had a good time. When we opened uh, Is a Sex After Death, we, it was like an October, cold October night, and we happened to know somebody who had this, I don't know how big it was, but we offered, anyway, choc- hot chocolate, coffee, tea, hot coffee, hot tea, uh, to people standing in line. Well, they didn't know what to do about that. I mean, nobody had ever done that before. And soon, little theaters around the city were offering little hot, Beverages, all people were standing in line, you know. And we, we we also stenciled the streets, which wasn't kosher in those days, but, but we did it anyway and got away with it. You know, we, we did unusual things, and uh, publicity was really what Alan loved to do. He loved to promote and, and publicize. That probably was, you know, half the battle right there, but the film itself, ultimately, the uh, I'm trying to think in what order this happened now, he actually worked for Hugh Hefner in, in '64. He, he actually hosted a radio show in um, the Playboy Club, which was new at that time. But now Hugh Hefner bought the theater we were in when we were doing this *Is a Sex After Death*. And he had already booked uh, *Hamlet*. Uh, and I'm forgetting now the the name of the uh, the maker of that film. His wife was killed by the the gang of Polanski. Thank you. And I did see it later on television. It was just so gloomy. So, I mean, more gloomy than you would think. It was just horrible. The idea that somehow Hamlet was going to do better than we were was, of course, ludicrous. Macbeth.
4: But he had to get... Macbeth. Can I go back, though, before you go into the distribution and the screening? um, What made you and Dad, what prompted you to make...
7: Each of your of films. Sex. Is
4: that what you asked, Mike? Like, what what did she...
7: You what prompted you to um, make Is It well, Sex After
4: Death and Taking?
7: I think, well, Buck, um, he took us to a porno movie once. Oh, great. Long John Silver. Oh, great. And I think the idea somehow of making fun of sex, which was a taboo kind of subject at the time, it kind of hit us like, that's the subject. That's it. Is It Sex After Death came along. We first named it The Sexual Revolution. But the idea being to ask ordinary people about the birds and bees and how they knew what the, you know about the birds and bees and stuff like that, it used to be a silly movie about sex and how people you know thought about it. That's what it happened to be. And, and I one day I came up with the title of Is It Sex After Death? I think the title, because the New York Times wouldn't run it in the paper, It was like, is there love after death? They either substitute or put a slash or something. And so that too, everything helped. You know, by censoring the title, everything helped, I think.
4: Yeah, it was way out there.
7: And, uh,
4: but I was going to say though, I think my parents were, it was new territory for them. I mean, yeah, deciding to jump into filmmaking was kind of a leap. I mean, literally, Uh, figuratively. Our friend, our friend was Bob Downey, uh, senior. Alan was in
7: two of his movies. Over time, we realized, what does it take? You know, what does it take? We've written books, produced records. We've done a lot of things. We had a small movie we sold to someone called The Last Man. I I don't know. It just occurred to us. It doesn't take a lot. We used Bob Downey's um, crew as we started out. Uh, You know, we didn't know technically a lot of the things that one needs to know, but they supplied it, you know. And it was really, we felt felt the important thing was the idea, so... But you had a script or not? Were you just winging everything? It was pretty much, well, some scenes I did, I did, um, well, you don't script Buck Henry because he's an improvisational guy. And we knew him very well. We knew him for years. So what you do is you script your questions to him, but you let him answer them in his own fashion. He is, after all, a writer and a comedian. And then you shoot a lot of film, and you hope that there'll be gold somewhere in that put it all together. <laughs> oh, dear. And that's, that's <laughs> our, 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 our way of looking at it. And same with Jim Moran, who was not a well-known person, but he was a hoaxer big time back in the day, uh 40s or so. You know, one thing led to another led to another. We saw a guy on television, Reuben Carson, who was an upholsterer. And we thought, gee, this guy's funny. He was on the Carson show, yeah, I think. Anyway, we, uh, we got in touch with him and we thought, what a better, what better place than, uh, Forest Lawn in California, uh, to, to shoot him, uh, talking about whatever. Again, Alan was scripted and Reuben Carson wasn't. And you hope for, for, uh, some moments. If the scene goes well, you give it five minutes. If it doesn't go well, you give it two minutes, you know. It was simple. So the only thing is, ultimately, the uh, park, that park police uh, there at the uh, forest lawn, got onto them because, of course, they were shooting with a larger camera than just a little, little small one. Maybe is allowed if you're just going through the park as a family. And, and well, they tried to produce, them, uh, present themselves as a family in a way because um, the, the photographer had his two boys along. They had, I guess, some sort of RV. I don't know exactly in what order this happened, but Alan. Threatened to ram the gate, and I gather the gate was closed. Now, I don't know exactly, but they were trying to take the film. So, Alan claimed he got in and revved the thing up and started running. Now, I don't know what happened exactly, but at some point they surrendered that the, what they thought, the, the guards thought was the film, that the film had actually been put in the toilet. And what the guards got was
4: Leader. <laughs> You got. Are you are you getting all this? The film is in the can. Oh yeah, yes. The can. <laughs> um, so I wonder so, if maybe it's better that you didn't know what you were doing because sometimes you know filmmaking it seems so overwhelming that like there's yeah. so many things that you need to know. Maybe going into it with that kind of like oh well let's see yeah. what happens. I mean that laissez-faire, fair maybe that's what maybe that's what maybe um aided. Well, I mean, whether it was little old ladies on the bench in, I think it was St. Augustine,
7: Florida, talking about, um, watch out,
4: we might have some children in the audience.
7: Welch, no, Ra- no oh, I'm trying to think of her first name. Raquel, Raquel Welch. I, you know, and these old biddies, you know, going on about her. I mean, to me, it was it was fun. I mean, there were people who did accuse us of making fun of people, which was true to a certain extent. We let people be
4: themselves, you know. I'm not sure that's harmful, really. But, well, that's the uh, verite element that was kind yeah, of inherent I mean, in that style. Uh, obviously, putting on a,
7: on a big screen is yet another problem, but <laughs> anyway. Uh, the first night of its showing, we were opening at the Cinema Rendezvous, and, uh, well, Alan, of course, created um, some commotion beforehand. He hired a lot of actors who looked like uh, celebrities. And, uh, we so had the use of a limousine. So he brought them to the theater in various groupings, and they would get out, and, and oh, we also had a line of people too. We, we hired a whole line of people waiting to get in. Then he also, somebody had a mic, and they were pretending to be putting this on, on the air somewhere or other. And so, uh, the celebrities were introduced as they arrived, and I don't know if we have a red carpet or not, but anyway, they were given some, you know, build up. Then they would go disappear into, in, into the theater and go out the back and eventually come round again. They would repeat the thing a number of times. <laughs> it's stuff like that. He loved to do that kind of thing. The unfortunate part of that fr- first night was, and now we only have one print at this point. We have one print. The projectionists, they're always old and cantankerous. They always were anyway. And he didn't want to rehearse. We had a special French pro- projector, they was able somehow to enlarge a 16, this is a 16 millimeter, and we're trying to pretend it's 30, 35. It did give it a different ratio somehow. It did enlarge it, and that was great. However, on the first moment when he started the film, the film was burning on the screen. And it's actual fire. And so we happened to be in the balcony, Alan and I. So I ran to the, the, the booth and... I don't know what I said to this guy. I think I didn't say anything nasty because we had to fix this thing and do it fast. Alan ran down to the staging and started talking. Now, he has had a long experience of talking to audiences, so he started doing a number. I don't even know what he did. He
4: started out by offering all the men a free vasectomy operation after the show. He was Stuff in like his that. doctor's outfit. He had a stethoscope. That's what I how I understood the I, story. Though. I remember that. But
7: anyway, I know he was amusing the audience. And so luckily, there were only uh, a number of frames that it didn't matter and too much. And we were able to actually either glue or, I guess, glue um, the, the film back together. I was horrified that it might be more. But luckily, it was only a little tiny bit. And it was at the very beginning. So the film showed more that night, and the critics were in the audience, and we didn't realize that at the time. I don't know why we didn't think it would happen. But anyway, later on that evening, after the, uh, we closed the theater for the night, uh, we went across the street to, uh it was actually, I don't know if it was Buckingham or something like that, but it was a building that was, um I don't think it was a hotel, it was uh, like a place where you rented rooms or something, but it's anyway... There weren't any people in it, I don't think. They were going to remodel it. In fact, we shot one of the scenes there because they said, you can do anything you want. We're remodeling. It doesn't matter if you hurt the place. It's okay. So here we are now. <clears throat> there's no, there's no heat in the place that night. But we decided that we didn't want to go back to the apartment. We just wanted to, it was, um, uh, Mike Rothschild and our, our photographer, Arthur Albert and uh, Al and myself and our, our gal Friday, um, who is named to lose me at the moment. But Later on, we're sitting there talking, and we suddenly hear her footsteps. She's gone out for the papers, and we hear her running in the hall. And we knew as she approached, she wouldn't be running if the news was bad. <laughs> it was one of the greatest moments in our lives, I think, when she arrived with those newspapers and all the good re- reviews. We just couldn't believe it. And the following week, of course, all the TV critics giving it good reviews. I think there's only one reviewer who... Didn't give us the best review, but later on when Alan did see her by accident, she said, well, you know, I didn't give you a good review, but when I thought about it a second time, I would have. You know, so, okay.
3: <laughs> a lot of good it does you that way.
7: <laughs> I,
4: I don't know. it's crazy. This it is a crazy time.
7: So what so made you
4: guys do the faking? It was just that you wanted to make a commentary, political we, commentary? We wanted
7: to, to get back at it. We felt the need not to disappear. And people like Joseph E. Levine, and you might want to censor me here, but uh, uh, he offered this. he said, I'd like you to make me a movie. Well, at the time, Joseph E. Levine was pretty big and I mean, most people wouldn't refuse, but Alan asked him, well, what kind of deal would you offer? And he started offering, like basically it would be a buyout and he didn't offer that much money either. He would he would make the movie and it would be a buyout. He'd get the money and I'm not sure what you're supposed to do, but you know you it sounds like there's nothing for you at the end of the road. And Alice said, well, how can you, how can you offer such a bad deal? And he said, cause I have all the fuck you money in the world. So we didn't go with Josephine Levine. But we but did. Something. Yeah.
4: I was going to say you did another independent production. Well, that was you. No, not me. I mean to say you guys just rounded up the cash and you got the crew and like you did it all by yourselves. You didn't have like a company, a production company backing no. you. You were okay. the production company.
7: We were it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or we were we a shopping bag. For, for, for being an independent, yeah. Uh, we actually probably, you know, in all things we said, we got a distribution money from the sorted, um, uh, um, and the first ones were what VHR and then uh, the DVDs and you know so forth. So over time we did get some distribution money, but they they screwed us out a, a lot because our friends across the country would say, "Gee, we saw your movie and gee, the people were hanging from the rafter," you know. And so we go and check the the books. Uh, Alan would go down to I
4: forget their dad name. would I- break in. He would actually break into the like no, what, the room where they kept the files I thought what he what he did was he he uh he went in late
7: late it was time for everybody to leave and um i'm guessing he, he made himself known but uh he managed to hide in the closet when everybody was gone but wait how do you make yourself known and then hide in the closet that doesn't sound right well, well he's like where everybody
4: that's more suspicious and
7: everything he managed to hide in the closet he said all right so um he, uh, um, he copied, uh, the books. And sure enough, you know, they were, they were screwing us all around, yeah. So, the guy who actually gave us the money, it was $100,000, I remember. And that was to open it, too. That included opening it. Uh, he actually owned the, the horse secretariat. And so, I mean, he was a money guy. He didn't want it known that he was backing a movie. Which was such a blessing because we didn't want any, we didn't want any interference. We didn't want him hanging around us. That sounds terrible. I know. But you don't want the money guy interfering if you're making a movie like we made. It was just fine, fine with us. So he got his money back and we got our promised money, but still, it was, it, it was really not enough considering his success out there, you know, where we didn't see it. The houses that were full and such.
4: So it goes. You want to make a movie, you know, zisky business. But I think that isn't that the irony that the faking had such like the absolute polar opposite reaction. Like it didn't even get out of the gate before it was yeah. just a flop. You well, know, I mean, the, in the, the best sense, right?
7: Because the pity was a lot of people once it failed in, in Salt Lake City and got terrible commentary and letters to the editor. I mean, it was just all around devastating. Then nobody wanted to handle it, you know. I mean, I think it played a couple colleges here and there, but pretty much all that work was for naught.
4: But mm-hmm. if there was like a, a a film poking fun at a president, I think like just if we put it into context, right? The seventies is it's just a, it was a different time, and now even though you think that more people would be more intrigued by poking fun at at, the, at Nixon at the time, you, you would think it would be more enticing but instead it was rejected. But maybe it was just that it wasn't a strong film, but what?
7: So many things your father did were um, ahead of his time. Uh, Back in the 50s, he thought, gee, wouldn't it be nice if when you're on an airplane you could be entertained? And that seemed like an idea nobody had at the time. He talked to all the airports, airlines, rather, and um, everybody was afraid it would interfere with driving the plane, you know. He managed to get one small airline in the southwest somewhere to at least put a projector in the back of the rear of the plane in a little area where somebody wanted to watch something, you know, amuse themselves. They could go do that. I don't think the experiment lasted very long. But then eventually some guy came along and asked Alan, well, do you mind if I try this? That guy did it. (laughs) That guy did it.
4: And he got very rich doing it. I mean, that was, that's always my takeaway too from, I mean, my husband and I have spent a lot of time analyzing the Abels and following their history and documenting, you know, now I'm, we're going through the archive and, you know, it's just, my parents are so prolific. But I did note, we did note together, Jeff and I, that my parents were always, if you had shifted the timeline just slightly, they, they were seen, they were ahead of, like, society was, it was like a puritanical society at the time that they were talking about some of this, like, really outlandish stuff. So people weren't really, they couldn't wrap their head around, like, they didn't understand my what my dad was saying. But now, you know, he, he's timeless. You know, you look back at some of his seemingly offensive humor, and it's it's brilliant. His pranks will live eternally, like, particularly Omar the Beggar. I mean, like, there's some characters that he did that he just... That he spoke the truth, even when he was, you know, in the character. He's, like, the alternate satirist, and
7: yeah, I think that it. was... W-
4: what? They call it performance art now. Right, right. Now there's like an actual title for what he was doing. Like, <laughs> and that, like same with Andy Kaufman. This is a better example. Like, what is he doing? Nobody had any idea. They didn't get it. Like, they were like, what is he, why is he putting a record on and then just standing there? You know, like, people didn't understand where he was coming from. And although I don't know if my, my dad was, like, as kind of kooky as Andy, it's the same thing. Like, People are they, not ready to, to accept it. They don't know what it is that they're doing, that he's saying or doing. Yeah, they
7: were friends. Um, yeah, Andy would come every, well, once in a while when he was, he was probably doing the, uh, the show, the TV show at that time, uh, taxi. Andy would come to New York and, uh, call Alan and they'd, they'd hang out together. And he'd want to, Andy would want to hear all of Alan's stories. And when Alan faked his death in, uh, 1980, and the Times ran his obituary. I mean, that was something that Andy really wanted to know about. I don't think he was sick yet then at that point in time. The irony is, of course, that there is still this mystique, you know. I mean, at least there was some up till a few years ago, if I recall. We had some sort of event down in Manhattan. I forget what it was called exactly, but Alan
4: participated in that. But, it was a celebration of Andy's life. Okay. And it was uh, basically an artist. It was like a retrospective, but they asked my dad to 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 be on a panel. Um well, they would
7: do do things together. Like there was um, a band on the street. That, first of all, they set out to walk. And he loved to he loved to inter interject with people. He would love to talk and have them talk. And he loved to walk down the street and be stopped. And you know. It, if you went to dinner with them it, it might be two hours later than you expected because he, he, he needed that. And this, on this one occasion, there was a band on the street not doing very well. And so uh, because drum, Alan was actually a, a professional drummer, uh, Alan said, well, okay, I'll, you take the, uh, I don't know, conger or something, whatever they had, and I'll I'll do the snare. And uh, so they they asked if they could sit in. And I guess the people didn't recognize Andy at, the, at first. Then they realized as they went along, oh my god, that's Andy Kaufman for God's sake. And suddenly they had a huge crowd all putting money in the, in the, uh, trunk or whatever they had on the, on the sidewalk, you know? <laughs> Then, then they didn't want them to leave, you know. But it's just impromptu stuff like that that, uh, it would, would, you know, they, they did. Alan and Buck would do things like that. They'd set up some sort of scenario inside, like a short ride in, of an elevator. If so there were people in there, there is an audience in there, you know. And uh, the two of them would do something and that would provoke conversation, no doubt, long after they were gone, you know. <laughs> They'd set up some sort of scenario with it and, and just make fun. But uh always deadpan, of course, deadpan.
3: Where did you meet Marshall Efren at?
7: Marshall was a friend of Bob Downey's, I guess, or one of his crew, and was suggested to us. And... Uh, I'm not sure what he, where he performed or if he was, he was not exactly a a stand-up comic, so I'm not sure what else he did. But he seemed, you know,
4: perfect for the kind of things we did. So he was in both movies. I don't, yeah, he's definitely a kooky guy. And I think he does uh, voiceover stuff. We, I think we were watching some animated something recently, and we, we thought that, that that voice sounded familiar. And Marshall, at this point he's retired, but, um,
3: I think he just passed away um,
4: Oh, last really? Year, yeah. I think. yeah, that sounds so familiar. I'm sorry, Mommy. I, I think I read that and I didn't tell you. Yeah, I know Buck, Buck's passing was really sad because we yeah, we kept saying, like, yeah, yeah, we'll see each other because he wrote us a nice note after my dad died and he said, I, I didn't believe the news at first because that's the problem when somebody fakes their death when they really – actually have an obituary nobody knows if it's real and the, in fact the New York Times two different people called me from the New York Times to double check that we weren't lying and uh, that was weird and surreal but the the fact that Buck Henry's obituary actually mentioned my dad and the Society for Indec- Indecency the Naked Animals and like actually giving my dad the credit for creating that was it was really meaningful at least for me because I'm working so hard to preserve my parents rich history and their story and there are times when you know people don't get credit for creating certain things and it was just it was nice of the reporter who wrote Buck so bit to to, you know send a shout out to my my family. With that particular keeper, because I think my dad was at a party and got into a fight with some guy. He said, no, you, you didn't, you didn't do that prank. Buck Henry did it, you know, because Buck was like the face of the prank. But my dad That's... was pulling the strings, you know, from and behind. And the
7: reason why he asked Buck to play that role was because he was then, Alan was then, for a number of years, he went on tours of schools and these agencies would book all these schools, the assembly programs, and um, Alan had this drum act, and uh, it was kind of like bread and butter for him in the early years in New York, to spend part of the year out on the road doing his act, and it would kind of support him for the rest of the year to do whatever he needed to do in the city. He also played the Radio City Music Hall for many, many years as a regular sub, and he enjoyed it just to be a sub, and the uh, Rockettes always
4: loved to see him come, um, because he He could bang out the drums. He was an excellent drummer. My dad really was like incredible. Oh, but Mike, you should know that there's a problem. If you look up Alan Abel drums, there's another drummer named Alan Abel from Philadelphia, and um they always got confused. They're the same age. They're both from Ohio. Uh, They look alike. Like, it's so weird. So another one of those stories, like, it, it just sounds too ridiculous to be true. But it, it is, in fact, the case. But unfortunately, the other Alan Abel just passed away. He got COVID, sadly. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, he died from COVID. So sorry about the gloomy turn there. Yeah, I think, though, that, like, my parents, if I were to say a general statement, they they attracted a lot of weirdos. Do you think that's true, Mom? That statement—that is true. Everybody that Dad knew or called a friend called his friend was weird. Like nobody was ever like boring or normal. They always had something know. wrong with them. <laughs> <laughs> they were always a little off. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, but no offense to Dad, but he <laughs> he had very strange tastes and with like well, the people he called his friends. We liked to think that our lives were extremely normal. We, yeah. we
7: thought of ourselves as just normal folks. Uh, it's just our ideas were different, you know, and may have been strange in some, some people's opinion. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, we did attract odd people. That's true.
3: What did you guys do for income? I mean, you talked about how Alan would go play drums in his early days and kind of make money and then live on that. But how did you two survive, you know, with Alan being a professional prankster well, and you going right along with it?
7: Well, in some cases, some of the more expensive pranks were actually someone would would actually uh, sponsor it
4: or you know pay for it. Basically, that happens here and there, and sometimes friends would do it. I think though that like really, mom, dad lived off credit.
7: That's Like when
4: the cre- first credit card was invented or came around, he was he got one. He's yeah. like, oh, credit card. You know, like he definitely liked to. To use the credit card, that was like a like a like a proud moment for him to produce, you know, the gold American Express or whatever. So I think you guys got in that. I mean, even with the pranks being supported, like just like, how did you pay for stuff? Is that what you mean, Mike? Like well, how did it they act?
7: Our, our own money. I mean,
4: granted, we paid for a lot of stuff out of our own money,
7: and we never had a lot. You know, I mean, if we did, it was uh, just here and there, a you know, little here and. There.
4: You're also I mean, frugal. We well, we didn't live for money like some folks do. We yeah, but I mean, we we drove we used cars. We didn't yeah. wear fancy clothes. We always wore our clothes until they had holes in them, and the cars had holes in them in them. The cars had <laughs> holes in them too. But no, I mean, it's not a there. yeah, it's not a bad thing. But I think my parents also. um they, You know, my dad did get book contracts, and, you know, there, that was still the age where, like, you could sell a book for a lot of money. Like, they sold their um, their story rights to different people over the years because people would find their story fascinating, and they'd want to produce, you know, but they would never figure out how to do it. But you guys got option money, dad yeah. lectured, he made money off his, like, drumming, and... He did a um, lot of TV shows. Oh, oh okay. he consulted, then he would pull pranks for different people, like as his PR stunts, so he sometimes did PR campaigns for people, and then turned it into a prank, that so he benefited from the press, and then they benefited from the spotlight, so it was kind of like a mishmash of, of stuff, and then Dad would get paid for some TV performances, and... Because he was a sag after a union member. I mean, I think there was some things he got paid for, some things he didn't get paid for. But it was just kind of like assembling a mishmash of sources of income and from every direction. And I don't know how they did it either. I mean, in any, if anything, it was kind of like we ended up in the richest town, one of the richest towns in the country. And we were the poorest family in that town. So, you know, for me growing up, it was a little challenging. I don't, I, you know, there was like never, I unfortunately went to a 30 year reunion and everybody's talking fondly about growing up in Westport and I don't have those same fond memories. I mean, we were, we were struggling. Mom, it's okay to say it. Like that's what kind of makes it, dad did everything artistically and creative creatively like he was a, a, so prolific but we weren't like driving the Mercedes Benz around town
7: no but uh your dad did bring I don't know what year was the Jaguar home and he
4: did own a Lincoln at one time too yeah like he liked saying right that we owned these fancy he had a giant Cadillac like a 1972 Cadillac that he was he really loved and my mom could never find a parking space for it <laughs> um So, yeah, I mean, it was just kind of like, uh, remember that show, The Monsters, the black and white show where, like, everybody was, like, kind of like, what's going on in there? And they were puzzled by whatever seeming, it was kind of like we were the oddballs on the block. Maybe not as, maybe The Monsters isn't the best example. Sanford and Son. Sanford and Son is a better 70s reference. Um, but we had a caboose in the backyard, and you know, like all this weird stuff. And I loved my parents. Like the fact that I grew up with this, like it's amazing. Like I, could, I wouldn't have wanted it any other way. And and if I ever sound like, oh yeah, my childhood was it was only with school stuff, like socially, socially fitting in with the, all the other kids. That was a little tricky. But what were you going to say, Mom? So the caboose in the yard.
7: Well that um he spoke to Grand Trunk Railroad comes to mind. I think it was some sort of convention. He also spoke at conventions too. IBM, Dow Jones. Yeah, like he was hired to do lectures, right, right. Yeah. He would he would do a put on routine. Uh I mean he would come on like some, you know, very officious kind of uh um know it all kind of a guy, uh and be introduced, you know, uh with some sort of, like, idea that somehow he was some superior person. And he would start to denigrate their business, little by little, telling them how this is terrible, this is happening, what's happening is bad, you know, the future isn't good, and blah, blah, blah. And there was so much negativity that after a while people would go, oh, my God, you know. But then he'd start uh, allowing a little bit of the humor to kind of slide in. And uh, sooner or later he would reveal he was pretty a put-on artist, and he was just having fun with them, and they'd all be laughing and have a good time. And so it was something he did a number of times. And they were, we called them Westinghouse guys. They were guys he met, I think, through the Mike Douglas show years before. And they were somehow, like he did a convention where he played a golf expert, or a, a, a guy who won a lot of awards or whatever, a lot of money. And he never played golf at once in his life. But he was teaching all these executives at this convention, Uh, ballet positions. And so, I mean, they fell for it because he did it. He got, he went to some, some very expensive New York store (laughs) and got outfitted, you know, with all these wonderful golf looking clothes, you know. And he pulled it off. He made himself look believable. So, in some cases, like, he'd be invited to a party to, to insult everybody. And he was so good at it that he'd eventually have to leave because people were hating him, you know. So, I mean, he would do stuff like this, and people would come up with the idea, you know, not his idea, but they would come up with an idea, and he'd say, okay, you know, and he'd do it. So, I mean, there's just lots and lots of that kind of stuff over there.
4: Yeah, he was a chameleon in that way. I mean, he was so, he really was good at getting into character. But, you know where dad was, my father was not necessarily, what his weakness was, in my opinion, was well, a script. No, no, no. Like if if he was handed a script, yeah. he was terrible. Yeah. But if it was improv and he was just like bsing his way through some cockamamie idea and making people believe in it, it he was incredible. He was this like a, like a like an artist. The performance art. That's where that comes in, where he could just snap into character and be that person. But hand him a script, forget it.
7: He did do a show, a TV show, back in the 50s. Just not more than maybe four or five years ago, we found out something about it. That he was walking down the halls of NBC when all of a sudden his then agent, who never found him anything that paid anything, calls out to him from an office and says, Alan, come in here. Apparently, the guy that this agent was talking to was the producer of a show, a TV show, that was starring uh, Leslie Nielsen. And it was about a drummer and somebody, some other guy. N- Nielsen was playing the other guy, but they needed the drummer guy. They needed the actor to play an actor who could drum or a drummer who could act. Well, Alan, they asked him, uh, well, tell us, are you a drummer? And Alan found two pencils on the desk and, and showed them that he could drum. And then he read a few lines from a script, and they said, you're the guy. He ends up doing this show. They actually traveled to the mountains, I guess. I don't know if it was live or not. Well, I don't remember the title. I'd like to look it up if it were possible. And then there's this girl whom both of them have an attraction to. And I asked him this not five years ago. I said, well, who is the girl? Who is the actress? Grace Kelly. <laughs> so that was Grace my dad's first rule. Kelly. I said, well, my God, did you hit on her? I mean, she's blonde. You know, you, you like blondes. And he said, no, she was kind of at the back of the bus. own business, you know, I... But I'm thinking that is really, uh, you know, that really blew me over. Grace Kelly. Well, it was near early days before she was Grace Kelly. You know, before she was a big star. Interesting. So he would fall into stuff like that. He would fall into stuff.
4: And uh, yeah, he would be just be at the right place at the right, the exact yeah. right moment. Well, I mean, that's. I guess you could say that about any anybody. But my dad definitely had it, a yeah. get or a knack for falling into the right place at the right time.
3: Where did the idea of doing a documentary come from and how long did it take you to put
4: it together? I began collecting material when I was, I want to say, like a teenager. I started collecting my dad's letters. Like when I went to camp, my dad would write, write me the most hilarious letters. So I started collecting things. My parents saved everything. So me saving stuff is like because my parents saved everything and i realized it took me kind of like a, i want to say I, I was a young adult when i f- was able to fully grasp the the concept that not only were my parents unique but they're they're really doing something that is like has way more depth than i knew as a kid in terms of the sat the satire component and what we now call performance art and Improv and deadpan and all of that. It was just like my, my parents were, I, I was in awe of their ability to just like create all this press and like, you know, do, it was almost like they were, they were in show business, but on the fringe, like on the outside, like never really like, you know, they weren't celebrities, but they were performers. I had met these, these people in Boston who, reminded me that my dad was really unique and deserved a documentary. So I I will say that it was my friends who kind of encouraged this idea of something, making something, producing something, and I realized I have all of this material, all of these tapes, all of these recordings, all of this stuff that my dad has collected. So I was actually working at Emerson College. I transferred from Michigan State to Emerson to go into television production. So I had all of the uh, equipment to review the The three quarter inch tapes and all of the other various material. I mean, I had access to film equipment but I mean my parents had like old like one inch video, two inch video. Like I didn't have that kind of equipment, but mostly three quarter inch tapes of my dad on shows, like on his on various T V shows. So I started watching some of this stuff and I was like laughing hysterically and the friends who encouraged me or had the idea as they pushed me into seeing how valuable this idea would be to make something. We just threw ourselves into it and started producing something. But then I ended up breaking ties with them and moving to Los Angeles. And I got a camera and I would go back and forth from L.A. to New York and tape my parents in their one-bedroom basement apartment because they lost their house at that point. And then when they would fly to see me in California, we would do more taping and I accumulated like way too much footage. And my dad met this guy who is now my husband and I've been with for 19 years. But my, my husband was a camera operator and editor. He's now a dif- director of photography. And he also saw that my dad was hilarious and his humor was so cerebral and He needed to be celebrated and we just like basically spent a third of our adult life becoming biographers of of my parents and amassing footage. So it's taken a really long time. I would say we started in 19. I started in, well, I started collecting material in like the, you know, the 80s. Um, but we started producing the beginning of the, what would be the documentary in the 90s. So mid 90s. And then we, Premiered at Slam Dance in 2005, so it's been a long time. <laughs> but it's like I said, it's worth it because now what was so magical about all of this is that, you know, my dad got to get like the standing ovation similar to Is There Sex Their Death? You know, there was a line around the block waiting to see the documentary in, in, in Toronto, and when Jeff and I pulled up with his parents, we were like, why what is going on is there a problem there must be some sort of an emergency but there were actually 800 people in a theater who paid money to see our documentary about my dad so my dad got a standing ovation from a full house and you know like my mom and my dad experienced a renaissance and that's what makes it so beautiful it's like it all came full circle like I didn't come around until 13 years into their marriage and my dad set me up on a blind date with this with this guy who ended up helping me make this like um you know this really beautiful film celebrating my parents and then the, the legacy continues like now we have a son who's like talking about my silly dad and he's a little bit of a prankster himself. I can't take full credit for the idea of actually let's make a documentary or let's make a movie. It was my friends who kind of like pushed me a bit. But then I realized, yes, of course, this makes perfect sense. But then I kind of realized that I needed to do it by myself. So I was on my own for several years. And then Jeff came into my life and we just, we worked together. And I don't think I would have finished it. I don't think it would be the same quality. He really brought his creativity and his editing expertise his shooting. He's like a a beautiful eye. So he shot, I think, 50% of what is in the final film. And I, you know, I had shot a lot in LA and we basically went through hundreds of hours of raw footage and my parents' archival material. And I mean, there was no way one human could have done it. So we worked, I had a partner in crime and Abel Raises Cain. And there it is. And I stole my dad's title, too. It was his title for his book, but... It, um, okay. Yeah. I'm sorry about that, Mom.
3: Jean, what was it like to have Jenny making this, and then what was it like when you first saw the documentary?
7: We had a little bit of a rough start on that, because uh I'm not sure it was completely finished, for one thing, but I was concerned that uh, so much was made of our losing the house, because... Losing the house, it seemed to me, was like, you know, a defeat of some sort. And we were not yet done trying to be productive. We were still writing. Alan, I forget if he was writing for the Westport News at that time. We were still doing some writing. And, uh, you know, being a loser, it doesn't put you in a good place. I was a little apprehensive about it being prominent in the documentary. I think that was my main concern at first, frankly. And being a loser in Westport wasn't what you wanted to be. But we were already losers in Westport. Well, I never... That, that <laughs> may have been true. But, um, you know, it, it was kind of an acknowledgment of the fact we, we were, were, you know... Uh, we didn't get treated very well uh, by the bank and, and
4: others as well. So, it was a little um, traumatic. I mean, I think if we're going to be sure. honest, that it was a terrible time in our lives collectively. It was It was awful. Yeah. Because the sheriff literally came and you know put a lock on the door, and they had to be out, and they had only like you know twenty four hour period to pack. Like it was insane, mom. But what did you think? So so oh oh can I just so yeah I excitedly flew home though with the with the rough cut that we had submitted to Slam Dance, and my parents sat still and were silent for like four minutes after the tape ended, and then they produced seven pages of notes. suggested changes do you remember that i don't remember that at all no yes and and then but then mom what happened the the critics were kind except for one guy variety but everybody else we got a good rating on rotten tomatoes and the screenings at film festivals led to more screenings and you guys went to screenings and we traveled all around the world like it was kind of a good like it was like a high right
7: well, it, it felt like uh, at last we got some sort of appreciation, you know, for all the stuff we did in our lives. It, yeah, it, it was kind of a good feeling for sure, yeah. I mean, Jennifer won the best of this and best of that. and We wouldn't Jane, have
4: won. Germany. No, you know, know, no, no but it, it was your story, though. Like, yes, we just basically took your story, so it's not like we won. It was you and Dad
7: yeah, were the ones no. who
4: were being honored. I, I'm not
7: sure I, sometimes yes, people did. There were people who, who, there was one man who, who contacted Alan who said, you know, you changed my life. Uh, I read, read one of your books all years ago and it changed my life. And Alan said, well, you know, send me $5,000.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
7: <laughs> well, he, he was a man with big money and he, he placed money where his mouth was. You know, I mean, yes, those things. I mean, you realize, uh, although, you you wonder, well, where were you all my life, for Christ's sake, you know? I could have used a little applause before. Uh, But, uh, um, anyway, it's nice to hear those things. And, uh, as they say now, they're calling it performance art. We never saw it that way. We thought we were doing satire. And sometimes there was uh, a point in it that we were trying to make, uh, for sure. And other times, maybe a little revenge here and there. I don't know, but... Alan got a lot of news, you know, made a lot of news over time. And I did as Yetta. I ran for president, in case you didn't
4: know. Did you? Yeah, my mom um, did, yeah, StoryCorps did a whole thing on Yetta. Um, Yeah. So I was going to say, though, that, like, part of the fun of all of this was that we got to go on the road together. So it's like, you know... The Ables, my husband, our baby, our dog were driving around in a van and, oh gosh, you know, yeah. it just turned into its own adventure. It was just like the never-ending adventure that just kept getting more interesting. But it finally, you know, it did it, it subside, but I don't want to get emotional, but like, I, you know, I think that it meant a lot to my dad. Whether he said it or not, he would always call the documentary a magnificent embarrassment, but I think... In actuality, he, he really did enjoy going up in front of a, an audience and doing his shtick on the mic and having that rapport. Um, my mom and I and, and he, you know, we would do Q and A's after the screenings and, um, the documentary now lives on. You know, we, we, had, I decided that it's like in this weird age of distribution, like we don't charge people money to see the movie. We just, I put it on Vimeo and people find it. Um, and the New York Times piece, um, after my dad passed away, they posted a, a link to it. So if people want to learn about the Abels, they, it's, we easy to find. That's why I asked when we, when we first started our, our call, like, how did you find us? Cause like, sometimes I think that the Abels are really obscure, but then I realize that there are a lot of people who actually do know about the Abels are, like, these little niche audiences over the years, and, like, people who lived in the New-, in New York in the, you know, 60s or 70s might be more familiar with my dad's pranks, but then there are these other pockets who know about Alan Abel. I'm always curious. I always ask, like, how'd you find us? You're coming from film, so, and, and my parents did make, I mean, Is There Sex After Death was celebrated, too, because of, obviously, their relationship with Bach and... Bob Downey and Holly Woodlawn. I mean, there's, like, you know, a lot of different audiences, concentric circles of audiences right there alone who would be fans of of those names. But I think it's funny that, Mom, you didn't mention that uh, Arthur Albert was somebody who came from, like, a random call that Dad made to well, Columbia. Well,
7: uh, when we were looking around, well, we had Bob uh, Bob Downey's main crew, and so we thought, well, we, I think, I think your father at that point, we weren't terribly happy with his photographer because we were shooting off, at, uh, you know, from the hip, you know, we were doing things on the street. We'd stop our van and we'd jump out and talk to somebody. And he wasn't good at that. We needed another photographer. So uh, Alan went to Columbia and asked the professor there of, uh, presumably the film department, and said, who's your best student? And he said, Arthur Albert. We got Arthur Albert to uh, initially shoot the stills, and we liked them so much, we thought, okay, let's. I forget at what point uh, we, we asked him to bring his camera, or I think he borrowed one or something, and he shot something uh, for us. We liked him better than the other guy, and so uh, we stuck with Al- uh, Arthur, and uh, we also had additional downy people, Burley Wartees and I think there was another one or two that came along Definitely, he did all of the faking Arthur did. I, I I know, I know he's shot a lot of films since, but we were his first. I'd be curious to know, uh, um, more about his feelings after all this time to look back.
4: Um, I think it was a good experience because he got his first job through you. I think it, he's, it's positive. He say he views you positively. the Well, able we, we
7: were, um, obviously not filmmakers per se. And, uh, here we trusted this, uh, Really young guy, I think he was about 18, 19 or something, and, uh, had long hair, vegetarian, I remember that. And, um, I don't know, he just, uh, you know, he was, was new to the world. It's like he it was just, you know, broke out of his shell, and he was very shy, and a very sweet guy. And I, and I, we went, go ahead. He, well, ultimately, when we finished some of the footage, he sat down and, uh, started running around, I stood behind him, and we were starting out the edit, we're going to, to talk about the edit, and so he would run it, and I would say, back, oh, back, 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 you know, and we do that a few times, and he said, turned to me and said, you're going to have to edit this. I said, you're right, <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> yeah, you can't, you can't, uh I mean, you know. If- but did he teach you how to edit? I I guess I'm not sure how I even learned. I sat down at a can with three heads, and and we looked at uh, initially we just looked at rear um, raw footage, I think, and just just trying to do, just just get familiar with it, you know. And we went down to film the film building way down, oh god, it's way downtown uh, somewhere, and we walked back in the morning and and, and like seven o'clock in the morning because we had the night shift. We're just kind of trying to familiarize ourselves, right? I get, just kind of get cozy with it, you know? And suddenly I looked at the burden that was there. A lot of the footage. I don't even know how many feet we shot, but it was a hell of a lot trying to figure out how do we begin. And so, um, I began by everybody who did a bit. I pulled together the best things and, and built little reels of everybody's stuff and then started work around that. It really isn't a huge task. If you had someone over your
4: shoulder telling you what to do, it wouldn't be fun at all. That's kind of like how Jeff and I operated, too, which is funny because we weren't documentary filmmakers. I mean, I had a TV production background. Jeff had a news background. We had, you know, neither of us had ever produced or directed a documentary, but we just kind of like threw ourselves in it and... You know, I took the classes, uh, at, uh, oh, I can't remember. It was like the big studio in LA. Basically, I, I learned how to, how to, how to edit on Final Cut. You didn't need to rent an avid anymore. Like it was like the timing was such that we could actually make this thing in our living room. And I think Jeff and I became shopping bag productions like my parents you know like just kind of by the seat of our pants but, but we winged it and we did it and it was actually like people people enjoyed it like the, the the story resonated with with people and it was just like a very parallel experience is is what i want to impress upon whoever's interested in this and that you don't need to be a master but you just have to have the passion you still need to learn the basic rules of whatever, whether it's editing or shooting. I know a lot of people make stuff that's not really watchable, so it's not just all passion. You do have to know what you're doing. So to, I forget that, erase that. But if you really care about a topic that you think deserves to be presented in a format, whether it's documentary or film, you need to just explore it. Because I feel like I don't know what I would have done if we didn't do what we did. Like, I would look back on my life. Like Now I can at least, when it's my time to leave the earth, I can say at least I made a documentary about my parents. You know, like, it was just like, if I didn't do it, then it, I'm, my, what? why else do I exist here if it's not to preserve my parents' unique history? I mean, Mommy, I you know that sounds really harsh and crazy, but... Isn't it kind of funny that it all happened the way that it did?
7: Well, yeah, and your existence, frankly, is, is due to good reviews.
4: Right. My parents went home from his sex after death, and they conceived me. I came along 13 years after their marriage. Like, how weird is that? There was no baby before then, but here I am, who, good reviews, and now I, 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 here I am, and now I'm going to, you know, become this person who... Feels the necessity compelled to document my parents' lives. Very bizarre.
3: I was curious how you ever knew if your folks were being serious or not because your dad and your mom can just be so stone faced when they're just I know. BSing like crazy.
4: I know, I know. Well, that's what I mean. Like, I'm enjoying listening to my mom tell these stories, cause I, I'm like, there is no way that Mike believes any of this right now. No way did this really, oh yeah, John Wayne's plane. Oh yeah, the Abraham Lincoln guy gets out of the car and there's a gun pointed at him. and Like, none of it makes any sense. You know, the
7: things that, that happened in his life are, uh, like, he was, he was showing me, we, we made a sample reel of his sex after death. We'd shot a number of scenes, and we'd edit it to to a point where it was like a good half hour or so. And he would show that looking for, he's looking for a backer, basically, (laughs) to finish the movie. So he showed it. I forget, there's a a place in New York where that sort of thing is done a lot. Um, And he, He heard a familiar voice laughing at the back of the theater. It was Cary Grant. And he'd been in that building or nearby or something. He happened to happen by, heard all the laughter. And so he's standing there watching the, the, this, 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 this reel that's it's just a, it's, you know, it's a sample reel. It's just a few scenes. It's probably Buck. We probably shot Buck and Jim Moran. And I didn't even what, know what else was in it at this point. And I'm not even sure who edited it at this point either, for that matter. And uh, so he had this little conversation periodically when we were doing faking he asked Cary Grant uh, to be in that movie. Cary kind of half was interested in doing something, anyway, in the movie. But um, he was signed up with some sort of, uh, I don't know, men's cologne or something brute or one of those kind of things that were, he had some kind of contract that he, you know, he was obliged to behave himself, I guess. And uh, so anyway, they had these nice conversations with, somewhere on are on tape, because Alan used to tape
4: these things. Uh-oh. Oh, yeah, my, ta- my dad taped everything. I just found a mini cassette recorder. Of, it, it was labeled J- Jenny's Gab, or Jenny and Jeff Gab, which I was like, uh-oh, did he have a tape recorder rolling in his pocket? Like, wh- you know, what's this from? My dad was very sneaky and a little bit, a little strange. Well, Maybe he that's... would usually record his
7: routines, hoping not to repeat himself if he went back. Some of it was just to check his performance and to have some record of what he but did he, what he said. he
4: also liked hearing the laughs. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I know so, because mm-hmm. he would laugh when the audience laughed, like when he was reviewing the tapes. I remember that. Did this interview go well? Are we done? Do you have any more questions?
3: I think that's it. I cannot thank you two enough. This has been wonderful.
4: <laughs> did we, you like how we kind of took over the controls there? We just flew the plane?
3: I like it. You were kind of doing my job for
4: me. That was great. <laughs> well, listen, with my mom and my dad, they go off topic. My Mom, you're way better than dad. But, like, I'd have to reel him in and, like, get the question back in there and then kind of, like, you know, there were a couple more curves in the road and then we'd finally get to the point. Like, my dad would always say jump to the coda, but he was the one who was always rambling.
2: Oh, here we go. Roger's here. That's right. I'm in charge of the New York office, and we believe through our 20,000 respondents that breastfeeding is a very insidious, incestuous activity that should be stopped.
0: (laughs) This is Alan Abel.
5: He's uh, been a major hoaxer here uh, of the media for uh, 20 years. He's a pain. He's a real pain in the ass.
7: guys are the biggest bunch of sick morons i have ever met in my life um i think all of you need long psychotherapy bye
2: (laughs) (laughs) he relishes pulling a fast one on reporters fooling the public by twisting the media's tale a veteran
1: media hoaxer alan abel has owned up to orchestrating the scam
0: He's known to some as the world's greatest hoaxer.
1: That's his art form. His art form
5: is the hoax.
0: Others call him a complete menace to the media.
5: Alan Abel was my first real lesson in journalism.
0: To me, he's always just been my father.
3: All right, we are back and we are talking about Is There Sex After Death? And I think we'll be spending a lot of time talking about the documentary on Alan Abel, which is Abel Raises Cain. What an amazing career that guy had. I didn't realize until today when I rewatched the doc that that song at the end, Mary Jane by the Profiteers, it said that it was written by Alan Abel. And I went back and I looked and I was like, oh, okay. I didn't, first off, I didn't know that he wrote the song. Second off, I didn't realize that it wasn't recorded for the movie. I went back and looked, and this came out in 1958, this song, by the Profiteers. So I now have a 45 on order from Discogs, and we'll see if it makes it here in time for me to use that as the closing music.
5: He's credited with doing all the music for the documentary, and it's something that the documentary didn't really point out. I mean, it did say that he had this career in music, but I didn't realize he had all these records except for the, uh, what was it, Professor Paradiddle. I knew about that record. So, yeah, it's, it was kind of like, oh, geez, I wish uh, I wish there was more stuff in the documentary about the his non-prank career.
3: It's funny, Skiz, this is the second documentary that we've talked about probably in a month's time that was made by a daughter about her father and I have to say, I like this one a little bit more. I think this one's a little bit more put together.
5: I actually, I was the projectionist when it premiered at Slamdance in 2005. And then, you know, uh, like a, a decade later, I was the projectionist when uh, Art of the Prank premiered at Slamdance, the documentary about Joey Skagg. So, yeah, every every 10 years or so, there's a, a prank documentary at Slamdance that ends up being a film that I will watch over and over again. I've lost track of how many times I've seen Abel raise his cane, but you know, I do love it. I, I just love, I love him. And I, I love, uh, certainly fascinated by pranks and hoaxes. And, you know, Andy Kaufman from an early age was somebody that I couldn't get enough of, even though all my friends thought he was an asshole and couldn't understand why I liked him.
6: This was the first time I got to see this this documentary. This was new for me and I loved it. Oh my gosh, like this is it just it made me love and respect Alan Abel so much. And and also just is like, man, artists like that are so important, I think now more than ever, with the current landscape. We're in where it's just sort of you know what is even truth anymore. This is all done to kind of basically kind of help encourage people to critically think. And I once knew a lady that uh, would teach critical thinking to adults, but she told me she's like people should be teaching this to kids. Like these are just something we should all be raised with, you know. And but we're you know most of us aren't. And. Um, you know, hoaxes like this are really good to kind of encourage that. I know there was a journalist towards the end of the film that even though he admits Abel's pranks were a pain in his ass a lot of times, he was like, basically, he was grateful because he's like, at least these are done for fun, as opposed to, you know, all the politicians and big businessmen who basically will lie and put out, you know, but it's not really done as a hoax. It's just more to kind of shape things for ulterior motives and profit,
5: yeah, it's weird to think that, uh, and I guess I'm sort of turning, turning my back on, uh, how I used to love these kind of hoaxes. Because at this point, there are people that think that everything from the media is a hoax. And yet QAnon and Pizzagate are not. <laughs> and I kind of feel the opposite. I feel like they're looking at the wrong, wrong things as being hoaxes and not being hoaxes. So it it almost makes me wonder, like, how much damage have these uh, pranks and hoaxes done over the years? I still get a big kick out of a, a really good one that that's funny and and fools a lot of people.
6: Kind of the cool thing with Alan and just the idea of like doing a hoax, not for you know, because they had that story where he was doing the organization to clothe animals, which had the great tagline, "A nude horse is a rude horse," but yet a lady took it seriously and sent him a forty thousand dollar check. And he refused to cash it. He was like, that's not why I'm doing this. But the idea of kind of doing pro- like hoaxes, both for humor, but also to kind of reveal something about a culture, I think is really fascinating. And for some reason, this may be from left field, but it makes me think of the band Crass, which were like this anarchist punk group uh, from the UK in the late 70s, early 80s. And um, and they're very cool. But they actually did a prank where they released a single and they, but they dressed it up like, I think it was something called like My Perfect Day or basically it looked like it was something a bride plays on her wedding day. And it's all loving. And they put it in like these little romance magazines aimed at women. So people would pay pay money for this. They get home and they play it and it was fucking crass, which is not romantic. <laughs> they're doing songs like Shaved Women and, you know, just doing very, very political very radical art, and so a lot of people were like upset by it. I thought it was hilarious because it's you know a band that did a song called Penis Envy is somehow getting their anarchic work in like these like the equivalent to probably like Cosmopolitan or something. <laughs> and I love I love shit like that. I I, I like art pranks a lot, but ski but skiz. I I totally see what you mean because it's you know the time period we're living in now. I just. It boggles my mind what people will believe and what they won't. You could literally with some of this stuff. You could just use the barest minimum of critical thinking and realize, yeah, the, this is horseshit. Like, you-
5: yeah, there's no basement in that pizza parlor. Like that that should stop that rumor right there.
3: It's a weird time to see onion headlines and then to see somebody quoting those onion headlines as if they were real and it's just like no 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 do your fucking research and i don't understand how people then have a pulpit to be able to get up and say those fake headlines for a politician to be like oh well i saw today that they're uh, milking babies and that's how they make baby oil and stuff it's just like no you know it's tough and then you get the ones that don't do it as well as the onion, you get like the hardtimes.net and you're just like, Oh man, that's so close to being funny, but it's almost too true. And I can see dumb people believing this. And it's, yeah, it's tough because it, I, I like pranks and I like a really good prank. But last year, 2020, when April Fool's ran, uh, came about, I was just like, fuck this day. I don't want to see anything. We're in lockdown. I don't want to see anybody making fucking jokes this year.
6: The joy of April Fool's has been completely just violated from us all. Because at this point, it's just like, no, everything's too stressful already. Don't add to it.
5: I was trying to think of good April Fool's pranks that sort of fit in with what we're talking about. And you're probably all aware of the 1957 BBC April Fool's Day joke that they pulled about the spaghetti harvest
2: It isn't only in Britain that spring this year has taken everyone by surprise. Here, in the Ticino, on the borders of Switzerland and Italy, the slopes overlooking Lake Lugano have already burst into flower, at least a fortnight earlier than usual. But what, you may ask, has the early and welcome arrival of bees and blossom to do with food? Well, it's simply that the past winter, one of the mildest in living memory, has had its effect in other ways as well. Most important of all, it's resulted in an exceptionally heavy spaghetti crop. The last two weeks of March are an anxious time for the spaghetti farmer. There's always the chance of a late frost, which, while not entirely ruining the crop, generally impairs the flavour and makes it difficult for him to obtain top prices in world markets. But now these dangers are over, and the spaghetti harvest goes forward. I
5: saw that as a kid, you know, it was years after the fact. I saw it sometime in the seventies and I think it was actually shown on TV here in the States on, on April 1st without any setup. And I was, even I was looking at it as a kid thinking, spaghetti doesn't grow on trees. What the,
2: <laughs>
5: and then when they, they explained what this was, I'm like, oh, that's hilarious. That may have actually been the beginning of, of my fascination with pranks and to this day, like every now and then I'll look that up on YouTube and it's still really well done. It's really funny. I, I mean, I love when uh mockumentaries are made like that, that people don't realize are mockumentaries. I mean, usually you can kind of tell, you know, I, I've told this story on the, the show before about the time I went and saw Spinal Tap in the theater. And I knew instantly that it was a joke because there's uh, Meathead from All in the Family and there's Lenny from from Laverne and Shirley. But the audience that I saw it with did not realize it was a joke and they were getting offended that I was laughing so much. <laughs> and I was like, come on, how do you not know that this is a joke? It's hilarious. So, and then a- another good example would be the, uh, Forgotten Silver, the, uh, Peter Jackson Coast of Boats film where <laughs> they basically created this filmmaker, Colin McKenzie, and this thing aired on, on national TV and people were like saying, this guy's a national hero. Like we need to be celebrating this guy. Like he, he invented movie cameras before anybody else. You know, he did all these things. He broke every, all the history that we know of. This guy had a hand in except before the history that we know, you know, like before the Wright brothers, this guy documented, you know, the first air flight, you know, and all these things. And then, you know, a day later, they had to say, well, no, it was a mockumentary. The whole thing's a joke. And people were, like, really outraged. But, you know, if you watch it now, I mean, it's from 95, 96, something like that. It still holds up. It's like a really brilliant mockumentary. And you could see why people may have been fooled by it.
3: And I would love that they can play with those elements, those, like, self-serious narrators, the talking head interviews, just all of those things It's so rife for parody, and I like a really good parody. But, yeah, it's been tough lately for maybe like the last four years to just kind of let go and and enjoy those kind of things. Because, yeah, of all the people that are believing just the stupidest things in the world, like uh, the Shaman QAnon guy who's just like, I don't believe President Trump anymore. And it's like, okay, you don't believe Trump, but you still believe QAnon. You still believe an anonymous person on the internet who's posting ridiculous things about JFK Jr. being alive. Okay, yeah. And yeah, it's just, it's so prevalent. It's just, it's driving me crazy to even look at... Things that I used to think were very funny, and now just like, no, don't do that. Don't talk about Idi Amin getting uh, marrying a Jewish person from Long Island to get a green card because people are going to believe it. People will believe that Idi Amin's still alive if you tell them that.
6: Skiz, your story about Spinal Tap. It's funny. In college, I remember showing that film for the first time to a friend of mine who had never seen it. She went into it. It was, you know, she was not into cult film at all. And I was like, oh, this is one of my favorite comedies ever. And we made it halfway through and, and she was horrified. And she, her breaking point was that scene where in the hotel room and they play cups and cakes on the radio. And the DJ says, from the, where are they now? file. (laughs) she made me turn it off in my defense this is the same woman that made me watch eyes wide shut and white chicks okay she should have finished the movie okay i finished both of those movies so becky i know you'll never hear this <laughs> it's it's weird with people that you know i don't know if there's some kind of lemming like and obviously the a case another other of sort of like false hoaxes you know we use lemmings as a phrase of being like having this drive to just throw yourself off a cliff. And that was all thanks to a Disney documentary, a nature documentary. And turns out the filmmakers force those poor creatures to their fucking death. Lemmings don't do that for real. And that's the worst kind of hoax. Well, other than QAnon (laughs) and stuff like that. But, but I don't know, but there's something, I don't know what it is about humanity where I just think sometimes like There's some innate stubbornness to hold on to some sort of outdated, like, ignorant, willfully ignorant kind of way of thinking that holds them back. I mean, I think with a lot of people, they don't realize they're doing it. Of course, I don't think anybody goes to anything being like, I'm going to be willfully lied to. But then the rest of us are like, man, if you really just sat down and thought about this with any kind of clarity for like at least two minutes, (laughs) you you, you would see through the fog. So, I don't know. It's... I mean, not to be depressing, I think there's always, I mean, I think there's always hope and there's always people who are innate critical thinkers, you know, we just need more of them.
5: People in the media oftentimes know when it's a hoax or a prank, but they don't care because they know it's going to be good for ratings. I mean, that the whole Donahue thing, that the feigning spell on Donahue was planned, like it was a Donahue producer that that brought Abel in and asked him, you know, can you do something to help us boost the ratings here? And I mean, I remember friends in the nineties that, uh, made up stories and got on talk shows like Jerry Springer and, you know, the producers could see through the story. They could tell that, that, you know, they were, it was a lie, but they put them on anyway. I mean, there, there's like a, there's a local band from Baltimore that ended up on Jerry Springer. The YouTube clip of that gets shared around Facebook at least once a year here in Baltimore because it's kind of legendary, but I mean, it was pretty common at the time. I think most people on those talk shows were actors or, or you know, people playing a prank.
3: Well, our friend Scott colanico I can't remember which judge show it was on, maybe Judge Harvey or something like that, when he uh, <laughs> allegedly hired the lady boy for his friend's um, bachelor party. <laughs> I mean, that, that was 100% bullshit. And yeah, it's just like these producers have to know. And it's, you know... It, it makes you crazy because you're like, okay, if Alan Abel can get on to Morton Downey Jr. or any of these other talk shows and be this Omar the Beggar character or any of these other characters that he's being, who's to say anybody else is real? I mean, if Omar the Beggar, for whatever reason, Heather, reminded me a lot of El Duce. And I just kept thinking of like all those clips we saw of El Duce on different talk shows. And I'm just like... Okay, so was that real? I mean, it, it, he was just doing the same thing, saying inflammatory things because you're going to get ratings. And you just wonder how many of those people that you see on those panels are actors or are fake, and it feels like 99, maybe 100% because it's just it, it's it feels like it's all artifice and all the business of show business.
5: It reminds me of like when there were newspapers and I was getting written about Pretty much every article ever written about me had at least one factual error that that you know somebody could have easily fact checked that, and they didn't, and it it just didn't matter you know because the next day there's a whole whole other newspaper full of articles. I'm trying to make some kind of point about how you you don't know what the truth is. I mean, to to this day, if somebody writes about me, they talk about my teenage years in a certain part of. A certain suburb of Baltimore that is not where I spent my teenage years. And it's because one article 20 some years ago said that it was. And I'm like, you're you're using research that wasn't fact checked, <laughs> you know, rather than just asking me for the truth.
3: All those years ago when I was in the New York Underground Film Festival, it's like there was one article that was written, and then all the other articles just seemed to take from that article instead of actually calling me up and asking me the questions and letting me clarify stuff. And so, yeah, it really just pulled the blinders off as far as how – And I'm sorry, journalists, how lazy a lot of journalists are because they just want to go the easy route. You know, it's like when I started to get uh, press packs for uh, films and there would be things that were incorrect in the press packs. But then you could see those things being printed over and over and over again in every single movie review. And you would start to realize people maybe they aren't actually seeing the movies because they just seem to be quoting from the press packs and the press releases. And it's just, it's really discouraging to realize just how little work is actually going into this and how much copying and pasting. And this is before like word processors were really easily available and just, Oh, here's a release here. And it says, uh, this guy was born in 1937. Okay. I'm just going to print that. and, yeah, if you look up in another source, you'd see it was 1939. But, you know, that's what it says here on this piece of paper I was handed. That's what I'm going to do.
6: Well, and I think on top of that, like, you mix in the fact that people just, I think, tend to have a very short-term cultural memory. And, like, I, I've, I'm i at the point now where it's like, even though I enjoy reading a good biography, every biography, almost anyone I read, I'm just going to treat it almost like fiction because – the human, human memory is not reliable. And I mean, sometimes it's people will misremember things. I mean, all of us do. I mean, sometimes it might be, you know, it's nothing even any, anything intentional or, you know, insidious or anything like that. Um, it's just, yeah, I, I remember around the 2016 election uh, I made a comment to somebody, you know, because there was just all this nuclear fear, and I'm like, "God, oh, this is like the '80s, like when I remember being a little kid." And they said, "Oh, it wasn't that bad in the '80s." <laughs> and I'm like, "Are you what? Like, I know I was little, but you know." And I ended up like writing, which I just finished it. I wrote an article about. All of the, like, how cold, like, nuclear fur popped up in mainstream music videos. Like, MT, you could see this shit on MTV, like, the most pop cultural, fluffy channel that you could probably think of from the 80s. And it was rife with it. And, but it's funny, it's just the, the damage of memory and just, um, And just also the damage of short-term memory, I think, with the culture and a society is, is kind of terrifying (laughs) because people, yeah, that's how things loop again. Yeah. The old adage, history repeats itself. And, you know, I don't think it necessarily would have to if, if just, yeah, I mean, just fact check, read, read a book.
3: People don't seem to remember when we got into the second Middle Eastern war that we're still probably in today. The whole thing about the, uh, the, the girl that testified in front of Congress about uh, Iraqi soldiers coming in and taking these babies off of, uh, out of their incubators and, and basically killing these children. And then you find out that the woman was actually the daughter of the Kuwait ambassador, but nobody did the corrections uh, the we saw the story about the Iraqi soldiers taking the babies out of the incubators, but we never saw. And this was made up 100 percent. And this girl lied to Congress. No, we don't know that part of it. And it's just like it drives me crazy. I got so much shit, Heather, talking about nuclear stuff. I got so much shit when I we did the uh, episode on Miracle Mile. And I talked about how petrified I was of the idea of nuclear annihilation in the 80s growing up. And people were poo pooing me like, oh, it wasn't that bad. Same thing that you're getting. Oh, oh yeah, it wasn't that
6: bad. Oh, my God. No, it's, it's, it, it, no, I feel you so much because it's maddening because it's like, you almost feel like people try to gaslight about it. Like, oh, no, you're not right. And it's like, well, if I'm not right, how come nuclear fear was everywhere in the 80s through movies, through television, through music video? I mean, I mean, and, and bands that weren't political. Like, it was that prominent. I mean, it's like people expect, you know, like, somebody like Springsteen maybe to do something. They don't expect men at work. Or or Nina. <laughs> or Frankie goes to Hollywood. But no, I mean, but that's Weird how Al. Weird Al. Why? Oh, God. Which I, those two are in the article, because, you know, you got to. But, uh... It, it, it's so bizarre, and and again, like kind of what you're talking about earlier, it could easily be disproven with a quick Google search. You know, not to mention all of the like, there were numerous close calls in the 70s leading up to the 80s uh, of of things of, of of almost having annihilation due to like a computer error. And then you have like reality TV. I mean, it's it's so weird how like artificial truth and and approaches to, to data and to life are just sort of riddled all throughout American culture. I mean whoever who would have thought that shock treatment like would be, you know, so prophetic? It's that
3: that misuse of the term reality when it comes to reality TV. When you watch enough and you're just like, oh yeah, this was 100 percent scripted. You know, you watch whatever that Gene Simmons one was and you're just like Sorry, this is a sitcom. You know, the situations that Gene gets himself in are as ludicrous as the situations that Lucy got herself in in the 1950s. You know, him going to see Carrot Top in Vegas and getting dildos super glued on his hand and then having to have the super hot nurse come in to take care of him. And she leaves the room just as Shannon happens to be walking in. Whoa. You know, it's it's almost three's company with these plots that they have and uh, you know it's like other things like uh the misuse of the term found footage where it's like this wasn't found footage you are pretending like this is real stuff and people some people actually believed that the uh Blair Witch project was a real movie that it was a documentary rather than a prank which is what it is
5: when that premiered at Sundance i remember the q and a where the actors are there on stage and people are asking questions about the characters in the film and, and the filmmakers are like, they're right here. And and people are like, yeah, I know. But you know, it's like it, people couldn't connect that. It wasn't real.
6: You think about poor, like Diodato, I can say his last name with cannibal Holocaust. Like, he went to trial because they thought it was stuff. <laughs> they, thought, they thought the actors were murdered for real and it's like, nope, it's special effects. And you, know, you have to get the actors out and be like, yeah, no, we're alive. <laughs> it's, it's just a movie. Um, but again, that's for critical thinking. I actually remember arguing with a relative when Blair Witch came out, because he was convinced it was real. And I was like, do you really think, A, why would you even think this is real? But B, that a movie theater that you could go in and also see like I can't remember what else came out that year like I don't know like some big budget Hollywood film right next to some movie where these people are legit getting murdered by the Blair Witch which you know spoiler alert that relative went on to now he's like some crazy conservative gun nut so uh, there you g- there you go <laughs>
3: never would have believed that
6: I know it was not a shock <laughs> some things you kind of hope like man I hope my cynicism is placed in a you know I want to be proven wrong please prove me wrong and then you're proven right and you're like, well, yeah, sadly called that one.
3: Sometimes my uh, criticism of stuff is so much that I will watch an actual documentary and be like, no, no, this is a mockumentary. There's no way that this is real. That one that you and I saw skiz at the uh, the Chicago Music Film Festival, where it was like, the guy who's like living in his parents' basement or maybe in their living room, and uh, and I'm watching this, I'm just like, oh, this is a great mockumentary. And then you're like, no, no, this is a real thing. <laughs> I was like, what? Because I had never heard of the band, and they're just like, these guys were going to be bigger than... than uh, black sabbath and i'm like what
5: <laughs> Wait, i'm i'm confused there were there were two that we could be talking about one was the guy that had the uh the chair covered in duct tape and he had i think like a mail order bride or something and then the other that was, i don't remember and then there, the other was an older guy uh in the uh, suburbs of dc who had this legendary metal band that neither of us had heard of well that apparently is a real band because they 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 came and played Baltimore and it was huge. And I know like Brian Windorf is a, is a fan. I forget the name of the band though, but that film, man, that, that had some legs. It seemed like for a few years there, I kept running into that film.
3: The name of the band is Pentagram and the name of the documentary is Last Days Here.
5: The other one though, with the guy with the, uh, mail order bride and the duct tape chair, I I haven't seen or heard of that one since.
3: I wish I could remember what the title was. I don't even remember that movie that you're talking about. The second one, the the first one with the duct tape chair. The the other one is the one that I was just like, there's no way this is real because <laughs> and especially because of those talking heads because they had so many people that I knew that were showing up on screen going, "Oh yeah, of course. Yeah, that oh, they were amazing. They were fantastic." I was like, "This is the return of Bruno all over again." But hey, I'm always looking for another return of Bruno Skiz, I have to thank you for turning me on to the art of the prank. I had never heard of Joey Skaggs before I watched that.
5: I confused Joey Skaggs and Alan Abel. Like I, I have a hard time remembering which person did which, and you know, cause I was like things that uh, we've been talking about. I'm like, Oh yeah. The, uh, the thing about clothing, the animals, you know, plays into the, uh, the, the bordello for dogs. I'm like, wait, no, that was Joey Skaggs. That wasn't Alan Abel. You know? But they all, they, they feel like they overlap, which is weird because, uh, you know, if you watch these documentaries, you know, Joey Skaggs is never mentioned in the Alan Abel documentary and vice versa. But they were definitely uh, treading some of the same territory.
3: I found it very funny the part when. You see Skaggs after he had gone to see the dictator by Sasha Baron Cohen. And he's just like, ah, yeah, he pretty much had the same thing that I've been thinking of doing. <laughs> <laughs> and then he has to regroup and go. And that whole idea of the, uh, the, the bicycle missile. And then they cut that together with the, uh, the, the confessional on, uh, on a bicycle to take to what the political convention, which I thought was fantastic.
6: Have to say if I, if I may digress for a second, something you said just brought up another thing that I cannot believe I didn't mention till now, and that is the concept of Mondo movies. Oh. Which this film I've seen, um, some reviews refer to as their sex after death as a Mondo type movie, oh. uh, which is interesting.
5: It, it the 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 sex bowl part reminds me, I, I think it's either Groove Tube or Kentucky Fried Movie, one of them has the same joke. Where it's like a couple having sex and, and and a sports announcer, like going play by play what we're seeing, and uh and I realized now that well this film came first, but yeah I had seen that joke before.
3: There's that incredible scene of the couple that is making out and they've got the record going, which talks about like lower the lights and do this thing, and then he premature ejaculates, but then like don't worry because.
2: Should premature ejaculation occur, the Joy of Sex album comes
1: equipped with...
2: Big Jim Slade.
1: Big Jim, former tight end for the Kansas City Chiefs, is outfitted with various whips, chains, and a sexual appetite that will knock your socks off. Big Jim has satisfied
6: women throughout the world, and the capital of Nebraska is Lincoln. Doesn't he break through the wall like the Kool Aid Man? Like he like busts through it. And I th- I think it's been years. I do love that movie. I think the the boyfriend's played by Jack Baker. Double check me on that. But I've, my memory serves me right. It's Jack Baker who is amazing. But yeah, Big Jim Slate.
3: It was interesting to see Alan Funt show up in Abel Raises Kane because that brought up a whole thing to me of like, oh, my God, I've been watching pranks on TV since I was a little kid. Like forgetting about that, about um bloopers, bleeps and blunders. But then that quickly morphed into like being half the show being that and the other half of the show being pranks. I mean, prank shows are still, like, I, my sister-in-law, who's usually very into, like, arty kind of stuff and, like, you know, oh, I'm reading this new book about this, you know, these uh, twins that were separated during the Holocaust and blah, blah, blah. And then she loves that fucking prank show that's on, like, Discovery or whatever where the guys use secret microphones and, and, and tell each other how to act in front of other people. I can't remember what it's called.
6: Oh, and Practical Jokers?
3: It's, it's the impractical it's- jokers. Yes. Yeah.
6: It's
5: Pretty much the same thing Letterman was doing. You know, he would put, what was it? The, uh, the guy from hello Delhi, He would have a, an earpiece and he would tell him what to say to these people.
3: I was just thinking of him the other day, because I I was passing by a McDonald's, and I thought of when he sent the guy in, and he's like, I want a quarter pounder, and a half pounder, and a three quarter pounder. (laughs) Like, Letterman had that whole weird thing about the McDLT, the keeping the hot side hot and the cold side cold. He just made fun of McDonald's for years about that. Yeah, you're right. It was totally that, that kind of thing. And yeah, we watched... We were together for, like, Thanksgiving or something, and my sister-in-law saw Impractical Jokers was on TV, and she made us watch, like, three or five episodes of it, and I was like, oh, my God, this is just
6: horrendous. (laughs) My parents love that show. That's how I knew I was like, oh, God, yeah, because they made me watch it, too, and um, they even, like, with my cousin, they went to Tulsa to see those guys live, which, how do you pull off a practical joke if you're going to a setting that you know it's going to happen? Is that just me? I'm like, I don't, I don't know how that's gonna work. But they, they had a good time, so you know, no hating. Life is short. Find what makes you happy, as long as it's not hurt anybody. But don't make your relatives watch it. <laughs> me and Mike don't want to see it.
3: <laughs> I thought I was going to have the worst time in the world. I had a friend of mine come down from Toronto, and we were just like hanging out and trying to figure out what to do, and we ended up going to see the first Jackass movie. And I was like, Oh, for fuck's sake. Cause I never watched Jackass at all when it was on MTV and just would like leave the room if it came on. And I was like, no, not for me, but we want to see the Jackass movie. I've never laughed so hard in my life. I love that. It's that one is like, kind of stunts, kind of practical jokes, you know, it's like a mix of multiple things going on in there and then it's that same kind of, it's almost that pace of uh, uh, of uh uh is there sex after death where it's just like one thing after another after another and I mean, it just moves, so like if you're not amused by this prank you'll like the next one and just some of those stupid things that they do, I mean like fucking party boy going around <laughs> and just like, it's time to party just ripping off his clothes <laughs> i <laughs> so good
6: oh my god i'm so relieved because i've taken some some heat over the years for loving uh jackass and even jackass adjacent stuff like cky and viva la bam and um oh it's funny actually there was one prank that bam margera pulled on um his friend Rayon where he's like oh we got a stage of stump but don't worry we're going to use digital bees <laughs> I'm like, why would any of his friends trust him? And maybe this, maybe this is all kayfabe too. Who knows? But, but at one point Bam looks right at the camera and smiles and makes the devil horns? <laughs> it's like so stupid. And then, yes, they were not digital bees. But that's something that's become like code in our household. Like you know we want to chuckle, we just have to say "digital bees." Other
3: than this is Spinal Tap, which I think all three of us love. What's your favorite mockumentaries? Uh, Heather, do you have a, another favorite mockumentary?
6: It's one called Six Days in Roswell. Um, has Rich Cronfield, who's a really hilarious actor. He was the co-host of one of the most underrated shows ever in Comedy Central history, which was um, Let's Bowl, um, which was a total – like, the contestants, I think, may have been real – but everything else around the show was totally fake. It was like a a comedy game show, and but he plays yeah you know, this this guy going to like Roswell and different science fiction conventions, and so you have elements where he's talking to real people. And in fact, I think Whitley Strieber pops up at one point. Am I saying his name Strieber? Strieber
3: from uh, Communion and yes. Wolfen.
6: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Like he's in there. So, but yet Rich is like he's an actor, but it's it's given to you as complete like reality. But again, it's kind of one of those things where if you're watching, you know, it's like they think of Spinal Tap, like, obviously, it's there's humor. And actually, he's in Trekkies as the guy that dresses us as of Captain Pike.
3: Yes, that is so good. He's in the parade.
6: Yes, that's Rich Cronfeld. And he is hilarious. And anybody Google Let's Ball on YouTube, because that show is gold. Skids, how about you?
5: Uh, I'm trying to think. I mean, I I mentioned Forgotten Silver already. I I can think of some documentaries about pranksters that I like, like the Yes Men films. But there's one film that I saw that thinking it was a documentary. And then I was told after the fact that it was all fake. And I've never really researched to see if that's true or not. And that's Exit Through the Gift Shop, the Banksy documentary.
3: It felt very fake to me while I was watching it.
5: It it, kind of did to me, too. But I... It didn't it wasn't funny. Which yeah. made me think like, Well, why would you make a fake documentary unless it's funny? I mean, I, but maybe it's so that you don't catch on that it's fake. But I I thought it was a great documentary. And then, you know, when I was told that it was all faked, I was like, Oh, I need to go back and rewatch that or at least research to see if it definitely is fake. But I I loved that film. I think that was one of my favorite films of the year.
3: Yeah, I'm trying to remember there was the whole thing of the guy, wasn't he making the film, and then he decided that he would become the artist? Something about like the art that he made. It was just so many different styles that I was just like, it feels like somebody made these and then just you know, like a lot of artists just were donated stuff is how it felt to me. Uh for me, I mean, of course there's uh you know, I'm still here. No. I actually really liked that. In this talk about stupid pop star, never stop, never stopping. I thought was very funny, but I have to say, I think Best in Show is my favorite one. That's probably the one I go back to the most and the one that I quote the most.
6: Yeah. Oh, it's so good! The the little like he's talking about hieroglyphics and the art of puppetry. There's like a hieroglyphic of a man with a little puppet hand.
5: Yeah, all those Christopher Guest films, except I I know. You know, I can tell from the second they start that they're jokes because right. the actors are so recognizable. I often wonder if the, uh you know, the Borat films are made to look like it's candid camera, you know, like Sacha Baron Cohen's playing this character and the people he's interacting with don't know. And I'm like, how can they not know at this point?
3: I did like the second movie when they actually addressed that and that all those people are chasing him down going, Borat, Borat. (laughs) And when he went into the costume shop and there was the, I can't remember what it was called, but it was just like foreign reporter costume and there was a Borat costume. (laughs) (laughs) And he's in the Borat outfit and the guy's just like, this looks kind of like you. I'm very curious how much of those Borat films are real or not, but yeah, I I still enjoyed those. I mean, the him and his quote unquote producer, and I love seeing that guy show up in other things. Where I'm just like, oh yeah, you're 100% an actor. But when they were chasing each other through the hotel naked, and the guy's got that huge dildo, I mean, I was pretty much on the floor laughing at that.
5: We know that Borat's not real. We know that you know that's an actor playing that. But I, I do wonder, like, how real are these situations? like
3: Will he really get all the people to sing Throw the Jew Down the Well at the rodeo? In 2021, 20, I kind of think
6: he might get a lot of them <laughs> to do it.
3: <laughs> After the events of J- January 6th, I can see a lot of people wanting to throw Jews down wells. Oh,
6: God. Thank God I'm on so Loft. I don't know. <laughs> <Ugh>. <laughs> <laughs>
3: All right, is there anything else we want to talk about pranks, or is this going to be one where we hang up and we're going to like, oh, shit, I forgot to mention that?
5: William Castle. We know what he did with his films, but before that, in theater, he uh destroyed the front of a theater where he was producing a play and uh spray-painted swastikas and claimed that Hitler wanted the star of his play to come back. And the controversy sold a lot of tickets. Yeah. <laughs> And it's kind of the same thing, you know, Abel having people pick it, his film, you know, it it gets attention.
3: Going back to Morton Downey Jr., those uh, swastikas that he drew all over his face, where he's like, oh, I got attacked in the bathroom by neo-Nazis. And it's like, how come your swastika is backwards, dude? It looks like you just put that on.
5: (laughs) I hated that show.
3: (laughs) I know, I know. That was like, I mentioned El Duce earlier, and... The only thing I really liked a lot about that documentary was the idea of people like El Duce, people like Morton Downey Jr. opening up the floodgates to where we're at today. And it's like, yeah, I can kind of see it. Just like the bullshit, the hatred, all that stuff just feels like, you know, all that shit has just run downhill and we're now standing neck deep in it.
5: It's taken all the fun out of it.
6: Oh, totally. Well, especially when you compare because like Wally George... Who we kind of like a little bit before Martin Downey with same kind of conservative outrageousness. He looks fucking cuddly. Next were Warren Downey Jr. really like planted the field for us to get guys like Rush Limbaugh and Bill O'Reilly and Alex Jones and just the whole Fox News shit. It's just so toxic and just so nasty. It's I have a hard time watching like old clips of his show just because it's I don't know. It's it's a lot. It's a it's a lot it's a it's a it's a peek into an underbelly of humanity that i think we're all way too aware of especially now all
3: right let's go ahead and we're going to take another break and we're going to play a preview for next week's show
2: i'm going to tell you the story of the journey down the road not taken this is the way the world ends this is the way the world ends These are the sordid tales of how it all came crashing down. This is an
5: epic Los Angeles crime saga. And you're researching your role? Yes. It takes place in the near future.
0: Scientists are saying the future is going to be far more futuristic than they originally predicted.
1: You're going to have to wear a bulletproof vest.
2: You think I'm there, but
1: Let's talk about your phone. What's it really about?
4: They're watching.
2: Taken down. You're not really here.
1: Don't look so scared, Mr. Centeros. The future is just like you imagine.
4: Someone must be hiding it. It's like the nervous breakdown of the century. Nothing that a killer, a porn star in a tattoo parlor can't handle.
7: less violence in the world if everyone just got a little more cardio
3: that's right we'll be back next week with a look at southland tales it's going to take a lot for me to try to unravel that movie until then i want to thank this week's co-host heather and Skiz. so heather what has been keeping you busy ma'am
6: I recently got to record a solo commentary track for the brand new Blu-ray release of Cecil Howard's 1984 Masterwork Firestorm. Um, You can purchase the special edition uh, via commandcinema.com and they have been doing absolutely sterling work for for Cecil Howard's legacy, um, who's just one of the absolute masters of uh, the golden age of adult cinema. I would call him an art house director, really, before adult. That's, um, That's the kind of films we're talking about. So good. Um, also, my website, Mondo Heather, has been Mondo Reborn. I am posting new and ar- archival archival articles every week. So please check it out over at Mondoheather.com.
3: And Skiz, what has been happening in Charm City?
5: Uh let's see. I guess while I'm finishing up my latest documentary, Sound Mechanic, about Neil Feather, an artist who invents new musical instruments out of found objects uh i'm also promoting the dvd for my last film ice picked the moon the documentary about reverend fred lane and if anybody would like a dvd go to the website www.fredlanedoc that's doc.com that's pretty much it it's, you know the bands aren't doing much these days so uh i'm staying home and sitting at the computer editing video a lot
3: Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, ProjectionBoothPodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world. I
2: am Raising Cain because I'm insane. But Mary Jane, I stood in the rain to meet the train. And Mary Jane, the train had stopped,
1: and my heart dropped. I thought I cried,
2: she was with a guy. Feeling kinda lonely. I had this to gain. No ball and chain. No Mary Jane. Rain up stopped, and my heart dropped, I thought I'd cry, she was with a guy, feeling kind of lonely, I, had this to gain, no ball and chain, no Mary Jane, no Mary Jane. No Mary Jane.
5: Okay, so this is a story that uh, took place back in the 80s when I was the music director at my college radio station. Uh, My friend Karen and I went up to New York for uh, the CMJ convention, College Music Journal. It's a weekend where uh, labels and radio people and bands all converge on New York City. And get a lot of free stuff and see a lot of music. Well, Karen met uh, Dave Kendall from MTV's 120 Minutes. And a few weeks later, Dave came down to Baltimore to visit her. And uh, over the weekend, she had her radio show. And he hung out in the booth with her while she did the show. And I happened to be stopping by the station, and figured I'd go in and say hi. Uh, Now, you got to remember, I was this sort of punk rock kid very anti-establishment. Um, so I kind of had an attitude towards Dave Kendall because he was from MTV. And at the time MTV, you couldn't get more establishment in the music world than MTV. So I was not going to be impressed by this guy. Uh, maybe he's a great guy, but you know, I was this early 20 something attitude, punk rock kid. Um, but anyway, Karen was a friend of mine and I wanted to say hi to her and I went into the booth and she was queuing up a record that I had just read the press kit that came with that record. And it claimed that somebody in the band had been a roadie for the replacements. And so I said to Karen, as she's queuing the record up, Hey, you know, the guy in that band had been a roadie for the replacements. Well, Dave Kendall, who wasn't really paying attention, he was actually looking at a record cover, which just happened to be, they might be giants EP that includes the song where the replacements he looks up at me and says, they might be giants were roadies for the replacements. And I just kind of looked over at him and stared at him for a second. And I said, yeah, sure. And left it at that. Well, a week or two later, uh, we're watching Karen and I and a bunch of our friends are watching 120 minutes And they play a They Might Be Giants video. And when it's over, Kevin Seal comes on and announces that They Might Be Giants had been roadies for the replacements. Right, Dave? And then Dave Kendall says, right, you are, Kevin. So we got a big laugh because it's like, you know, we figured that that was just from this misunderstanding that happened at our college radio station. But that rumor kept showing up in print. And... I I would try to interview, they might be giants, whenever they would come to the Baltimore, D.C. area. And the next time I spoke to them, I said, so, what's up with this rumor about you guys being roadies for the replacements? And they said, we have no idea. That rumor has tracked us all over the world. We have not been able to figure out how it started. And I finally, when we got off the air, I told them, you know, the story and everything. So I, I was not purposely trying to pull a prank with that happen when that happened. But I'm starting to think that maybe a prank was pulled on me because the band that Karen was queuing up, if I remember correctly, it was a band called The Pink Holes, which were sort of like a, a punk band out of Cleveland who uh, really didn't take things too seriously. And I'm thinking maybe somebody at their record label put this little tidbit of knowledge in their press kit thinking, well, let's start a rumor about the ban and it'll help the ban help promote the van. And, uh, and, you know, being like the, the people in the media that I've complained about who just sort of use press releases as their research, I'm guilty of that. You know, I, I just believed this tidbit of knowledge in this press kit and said it out loud. And of course the effect, that whoever wrote that was probably hoping for promoting this band didn't really work. It ended up promoting a completely different band. (laughs) So in a way they did get a result from their prank. Now I kind of worried that it wasn't the pink holes. Maybe I'm remembering that band incorrectly because when I looked it up, The the They Might Be Giants EP came out in 87, but the Pink Holes album I'm thinking of came out in 85. So unless it took them two years to send that record out to college radio or it got reissued or something, I I can't, you know, I may be remembering it wrong. I've also not been able to find anything online that connects the two bands, you know, the Pink Holes with the replacements. So anyway, that's my uh, fun little They Might Be Giants story.